the mother of all talk shows is back. Unleashed, unabridged, uncensored, and unbelievable. Only on Sputnik Radio. Listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway. Only on Sputnik Radio. Welcome to the mother of all talk shows, the Open University of the Airwaves, the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees and you are positively encouraged to speak back to the teacher. Well, the British general election is ending just like it began. The air is thick with accusations that it was the Russians what won it. Which, if you think about it, given that it began with Labour accusing Boris Johnson and the Conservatives of being in the pay of the Kremlin, and it's ended with Boris Johnson and the Conservatives more traditionally accusing Jeremy Corbyn of being in league with the Kremlin over the leaked documents concerning the trade talks with the USA. I guess that means President Putin wins either way. Actually, unless this turns into a final furlong like no other since Devon Loch collapsed at the last hurdle, Boris Johnson is several lengths ahead and likely to stay in Downing Street. We'll be talking to Manila Chan, the star of RT America, about Donald Trump and Colonel Gaddafi's former right-hand man about the disintegration of Libya. All coming up, fasten your seatbelts. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. The mother of all talk shows. The only education you can get for free. George Galloway. This is Radio Sputnik. And this is London, but broadcasting to you, of course, all over the world, thanks to the wonders of the internet. And Moscow's famous defences are up and ready for our weekly cyber attack. No sign of the attackers. So far, at least, I think, the Kremlin has seen them off. So far, so good. Now, it is the end game of the British general election. And there's no point in trying to fool you on the basis of the largest poll today on the front page of the Labour Liberal Inclined Observer newspaper. We're not talking about YouGov. We're talking about a serious poll by a reputable company. The Conservatives are 15 points ahead, which is landslide majority territory. Although... That cannot take into account several other possibilities, one of which is tactical voting, one of which is people voting for whoever is best placed to stop or beat the Conservative 
even if that party is not by any means their first choice. Neither can it take into account any last-minute final furlong obstacles that might come in the way of a Tory victory. But it has to be said at this distance, if JC wins on Thursday, well, it's a miracle and he'll be able to walk over the River Thames on water and enter Parliament as the leader of the majority party. I'm going to rule out for sensible purposes the possibility of a majority Labour government, but a minority Labour government in a hung parliament is the best that Labour supporters this evening are hoping for. And that, of course, cannot be ruled out. We'll be talking to the doyen of cephalogists, political scientists, Professor Sir John Curtis, the daddy of them all when it comes to elections. We'll be talking to him very shortly indeed. The Sunday Times, uh, as part of the tsunami uh, of bad news, some would say fake news, that has dogged this election, says that if Corbyn loses on Thursday, he will resign and will seek to install, through the National Executive Committee of the party, his right-hand man, a right hand which has been up his back for the last few months, operating him, John McDonnell, as the next leader of the Labour Party. Just to organise a leadership election, you understand. Though, if I know John McDonnell, that may take some considerable time indeed. Now, the tsunami of bad news and fake news is a real thing. And one of the takeaways from this election is that you can't trust the so-called mainstream British media. Anyone who does must have their head buttoned up the back. I don't see myself why any of us should pay to be lied to. To be lied to is one thing, to pay for the privilege, something quite different. So I'll be surprised if millions of people don't switch off and stop buying the fake media, which is entirely circular, of course. The fake newspaper media run their front pages, which dominates the news cycle from the review of the papers the night before through the breakfast morning shows, which all have the papers spread out in front of them and dictating their agenda for most, at least, of the rest of the day. Then there's the carefully calibrated assassination squads that are out there. And not just on the obvious issues. But before I turn to them, let me give my own report from the front in the West Midlands on the cold pavements of the West Midlands Labour is dead and buried. The so-called Red Wall has broken and all kinds of places that haven't elected a Conservative MP, sometimes forever, sometimes for half a century, are poised to do so again. And they're going to do so on two grounds. The first is Brexit. And nobody watching or listening can say that I didn't warn them. I warned repeatedly for the last two years that if Labour boxed itself into the position of the party 
that is blocking Brexit, that will stop Brexit, that will force you to vote again, then the millions of Labour voters who voted for Brexit would begin to melt away like snow off a dike. And that is exactly what is happening. I'm here to tell you it. It's not because I'm rejoicing in it. Far from it. It's not because that's what I want to happen. It's what I'm telling you is happening. And if you are in denial about that, then you haven't been on the cold pavements of the West Midlands. And the East Midlands may even be worse, as might parts of the Northwest, the Northeast, and of South Wales. For Labour, in those places, it's going to be a bad night. Of course, in Remainer areas, Labour will pile up massive 30,000 plus majorities, precisely because uh, they are pledged to have a second referendum to make you vote again on Brexit. But I don't need to tell the clever people at this open university of the airwaves, it profits you not to have a 30,000 majority in one place where you had a 20,000 majority before, if you're losing places that you held narrowly in the previous general election and failing to win places that you had targeted in order to obtain victory in this general election. The reality is, I'm sorry to tell you, that it isn't just Brexit. I touched on it last week. I'm going to sharpen it up uh, this week. From the point of view of working class people throughout England, I don't think it's different in Scotland or in Wales, but I have no direct knowledge recently of that. For working class people, they feel that Labour has launched a culture war against them by forcing them to vote again on Brexit, by characterising them as thick, lazy, stupid, northerners, probably racist, almost certainly homophobic, almost certainly misogynistic, not properly grasping the nuances of transgender politics in this modern age. People think that Labour doesn't look like them anymore. And Labour has deliberately chosen how it looks. All the time, not now and again, but all the time. Their output, the seating arrangements on the Labour front bench, the choice of subjects to run on has far too often in the last four, nearly five years, been a choice that has alienated Labour's traditional base. Now, it's not that I want that to be the case. I'm telling you, it is the case from my knowledge. And I suspect that you'll agree with me when you see the results that come in on Thursday night. I'm sure we'll have plenty of time to discuss that in the course of the next three hours. So let me leave the election there, except for this. The assault on Jeremy Corbyn as an anti-Semite is not just false. It's not just the opposite of the truth. It is a systematic subversion of our politics. I say subversion because it is without any shadow of a doubt mounted from outside and mounted in defense 
of interests outside. You see, no one can credibly point to a single word or action that Jeremy Corbyn has ever uttered or done that would be able to be evidence of him evincing any kind of hostility or any kind of bigotry or discrimination against Jewish people. In fact, the opposite is the truth. But you can adduce, and they are adducing, tons of evidence that he has spent his life standing up against what he thinks are crimes committed by Israel and what he thinks are systematic crimes based upon the way on which the state of Israel was founded. Put more bluntly, Corbyn supports the Palestinians and opposes Israel. And Israel has had its revenge. And all of its supporters have been mobilized. And people who've never met a single Jewish person, who cannot point to a single thing that Labour has ever done against Jews, are persuaded that Jeremy Corbyn is anti-Semitic. And this is organized, militarized, mendacity on a scale that has never been seen in British politics before. Whole books, PhD theses, in the years to come, will wonder at the success of this campaign. It's not been helped by the way Labour faced it. They faced it the wrong way from the first day, and they've been facing it the wrong way every day since, including this day on Andrew Marr, the erstwhile Trotskyite newspaper seller on the BBC, interviewing the next, apparently, leader of the Labour Party, John MacDonald, today. John MacDonald's more or less final words were, we are sincerely sorry to the Jewish people in Britain for the terrible offence which we have committed against them. But Labour didn't commit any offence against them. And as I've put it to you before, by retreating, by conceding, by capitulating, by rewriting your rules, by banning things that were commonplace from the mouth of Jeremy Corbyn himself just five years ago, and by throwing one after another after another of Jeremy Corbyn's closest friends under a bus, it's not just not a pretty sight, it doesn't even work. Now we'll be talking to the great Manila Chan, the star news anchor of RT America in the second hour, I think, perhaps third of the show about Donald Trump, who is in his own difficulties now. He's facing an impeachment process that seems to be going for broke as the run-up to the US presidential election uh, looms. The American primary season is about to begin. They're determined to put their adversary out of action before they reach polling day. As well, they might because if they pick any of the favorites that they are currently predicted to pick, well, Donald Trump will beat them again. And we'll be talking to the former right-hand man of Colonel Gaddafi, 
the erstwhile leader of Libya. His spokesman, Dr. Musa Ibrahim, became a household name and face as the old regime in Tripoli was falling and the new terrible, terrible power was coming into office, or rather three offices. At the last count, there were three parliaments in Libya, four prime ministers. Don't ask me how that works. Now, Libya, once the richest country in Africa, is disintegrating in front of our eyes, has ceased to be an effective state, not a failed state, but no state at all. We'll be talking to Dr. Musa Ibrahim about the tragedy of Libya. Now, if you're watching us on Facebook, as record numbers of you are, please share the show with all your friends on Facebook as we chase that magic number of one million viewers and listeners in part or in whole of the mother of all talk shows. You can also watch on YouTube, on my YouTube channel, on RT's, and on Facebook, on my Facebook and RT's, multiple platforms. You can even watch us on Twitter, as a record number of you did last week. The audience for this show, notwithstanding the cyber attacks, is on the up, up, up. Now, here's our first poll of the night. Who will win the general election on Thursday? A, Labour. B, the Conservatives. C, a hung Parliament. You can vote now on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. The poll closes at 9pm. Now, Sir John Curtis has been right about many things in his long and distinguished political science career. He should be in the House of Lords. If I had the power to put him there, I would, but then he probably would turn it down. He's that sort of a guy. He reads the runes. He studies the polls. He analyzes the trends. We just look at a poll on a page in a newspaper and move on. He digs underneath and locates the way the wind is blowing. And I hope he's on Skype with me now. Professor Sir John Curtis, welcome back to the mother of all talk shows. Uh, good evening, George. Now, Sir John, the, uh, the big poll this morning uh, was the Observer poll. It made pretty grim reading for Labour supporters. Tell us first, please, how you saw that poll, and then we'll move on to the trends that you're detecting elsewhere. Yeah, the opinion poll in the Observer was one of four polls published this morning. It had the Conservatives 15 points ahead, but that, in truth, is what Opinion was saying a week ago. Opinion have now emerged in this election as the pollster that's tending to produce the largest leads for the Conservatives, and therefore, from a Labour perspective, at least, is producing the least comfortable numbers. Other polls put the lead rather smaller, uh, one as low as eight, others around the 9-10 mark. And the average lead for the Conservatives in the polls is 10 points in the polls that have come out this weekend, now, that's somewhat less than the Conservatives who were enjoying two or three weeks ago, but it's pretty much back to where we were at the beginning of this campaign. The only difference being that during the campaign, both the Conservatives and the Labour Party have made progress. In both cases, 
by about five points or so, uh, the net effect of which is simply to leave the Conservatives ahead where they were. It's uh, simply the Brexit Party who suffered by being squeezed by the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats, who on the Remain side of the uh, Brexit argument have been squeezed uh, by the Labour Party. Those kind of poll numbers, 10-point lead or so, if that average is correct, Conservative seats about 350, majority of 50. A couple of other exercises that came out this morning, which uh, had done a lot of statistical analysing of the data using a now much much favoured method for doing so. One said 344, the other said 345. So all of the data at the moment, or pretty much all the data, are pointing to some kind of Conservative majority though not necessarily one that's guaranteed, because the Conservatives need probably more than a six-point lead to get an overall majority. Uh, So 10 points is not so far ahead of that that they can necessarily sit comfortably. And we do have to remember, insofar as this election is about Brexit, that there is no other party likely to win seats in the House of Commons that's willing to vote for Boris Johnson's deal as it's currently constituted. So if the Prime Minister fails to get a majority, then his deal could well be dead, as dead as Theresa May's was was, uh, beforehand. Well, we'll we'll come on to what that would mean for for next year. Uh, Presumably, it means another general election. Uh, But before I go there, 10 points is... I know this is a very unscientific thing to say to a scientist of your note, but 10 points feels about what it is to me. That's my anecdotal, my daily experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that yours or are you shocked at the 10 point uh, rate? Look, George, I don't think any political scientist who spends half his life in Scotland and the other half of the campaign in London, both of which are ardently remain parts of the country, could necessarily be said that uh, anecdotally they've come across a cross-section of the uh, UK population. That said, what it does fit is is quite a lot of the vox pops, the interviews one is heard with interviewers, uh, with the people via the media, I particularly would point you to um, a programme that BBC Newsnight did a couple of weeks ago, interviewing people in Wakefield, or indeed a story that's in the Sunday Times today, interviewing people in the Working Men's Club in Trimden, where you're getting people who are saying that they're lifelong Labour voters, but they voted leave and they're upset about the fact that Brexit hasn't been delivered and they've been persuaded by Boris Johnson that Labour is part of the obstacle to the delivery of Brexit and they are saying they are going to vote for the Conservatives in some cases for the first time in their lives. And there is undoubtedly, there's a wall of seats out there from North East Wales through to Ashfield and Nottinghamshire, up to Durham, across to Cumbria with Workington. Seats have traditionally just been basically safe Labour seats, but in the wake of the Brexit vote, swung quite strongly to Conservatives in 2017, although the Tories didn't quite manage to pick them up, but they're now marginals. And if these polls are correct, then these kinds of seats are now uh, potentially vulnerable. So it's the frankly, a potentially quite serious break with the Labour Party amongst a section of older, um, pro-leave, traditional working-class Labour voters where the party's in trouble. In contrast, one suspects there are parts of the south of England, including not least London, where the party might uh, find itself in much less difficulty. Any big scalps uh, that you could predict would go if this poll, these polls, the average of them today... I mean, the, will there be a Portillo moment for anybody based on what you know so far? 
Well, the nearest I think we expect to a Portillo moment is probably Zach Goldsmith in Richmond Park. Not that he's somebody whom the Labour Party have in their sights, but rather the Liberal Democrats. Uh, the Liberal Democrats actually beat him in a uh, by-election in 2016, and then uh, he regained it again in 2017. Um, he, he's not in the cabinet, but he's a, he's a relatively senior minister, and he's probably the most senior person who's definitely uh, likely to be on the chop, given the average of the polls. There are but then one or two other potential notable uh, uh, casualties in uh, those Labour leave held seats, of which perhaps the most notable is potentially Dennis Skinner, the so-called beast of Bolsover, or who, if he's elected now and is well into his 80s, would become the father of the House in uh, following on from Kenneth Clark. But there's no guarantee that he's going to get, get elected, uh, given where the polls are at. Otherwise, as far as big beasts are concerned, we're just looking to see whether or not something happens against the general tide. So, for example, Ian Duncan-Smith, another arch-Brexiteer in North London, his constituency is becoming more pro-Remain. Is he, is he in danger? Nothing to do with the average of the, of, of the polls, but the Liberal Democrats are trying very hard to dislodge the very pro-Brexit Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab in Isha, and that he's, he's trying to defend a very pro remain seat. And there are one or two other uh, key battles, very Suai generous battles in London, for example, Chukramunu, the former shadow Labour cabinet member who's now uh, fighting for the Democrats having defected Labour over Brexit. He's trying to win the city of London and Westminster South and the absolute heart of the capital, not somewhere that's traditional Liberal Democrat territory, but very pro-Remain territory. Um, the polling's been done, that constituency suggests he isn't going to make it, but it certainly is unusual to see the, the Liberal Democrats uh, challenging strongly in parts of London that hitherto, uh, frankly, have never really uh, been much of importance at all. What about the likes of Yvette Cooper and Ed Miliband in the north? Would they be down on, on these kind of swings? They might. They, 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 neither of them have constituencies that look as though they would potentially go. Though one of um, Ed Miliband's neighbours, Caroline Flint, who, uh, although originally pro-Remain, has been one of the Labour MPs most willing to vote in favour of Brexit, indeed voted in favour of Boris Johnson's uh, deal on the second reading back in October, um, she is on the list of people who could potentially be casualties despite her personal record on the subject. Now, uh, this is a question I could have looked up for myself, but save me. Uh, is the party that's leading on the final Sunday usually the party that wins it, or can the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of this week actually bring about any change? Based well, on your historical experience. Yeah, sure. I mean, usually it's the party that's ahead that's going to win inevitably. I, I guess the one election which we know that clearly wasn't the case, though in those days polling wasn't done as close up to the final day as it is done now, uh, and that was back in 1970 when Edward Heath dislodged Howard Wilson. Uh, that certainly was an election that saw a late swing. You might also want to add February 1974 when Edward Heath then lost to Howard Wilson. There was certainly a movement fairly late in the campaign. And of course, in 2017, Labour certainly gained ground fairly late in the campaign, although not enough to stop the Tories from still being the largest party. So, yeah, I mean, movements can happen, um, but not always. And I mean, But I think here again, we come back to the point, George, is that this isn't simply an election about whether or not the Conservatives win. 
it's an election about whether or not they get an overall majority and that therefore uh, it's not that they do actually have to do better than Theresa May did in 2017 if Boris Johnson is going to achieve his objective and if he doesn't get an, a majority then even though might, he might have more seats than Labour he could still find himself being turfed out of 10 Downing Street. Now, might I have the temerity, the lessee majesty, to uh, pose a question like this? Uh, you predicted at the beginning, indeed on this show you predicted it, yeah. that there would be, uh, that the, the two big parties would have far less dominance in the new parliament than they'd had for a very, very long time, and that all kinds of smaller parties and so on would be in the House. Would you revise that now based on what you know? Uh I'm quite happy to acknowledge that the forecast is not as certain as it once was. That said, um, uh, well, first, I mean, first of all, the force of my point is still probably likely to be there in that if you take the current polls, for example, I mean, the record number of third party MPs is 88. We at the moment might get 82. So it might be slightly less, but it's still going to be on the high side. Frankly, much really now depends on I might, that, that whether or not I'm going to be proved right or wrong is going to depend primarily on the fortunes of the Democrats. The SNP in Scotland, who are a crucial part of that forecast, uh, their vote is certainly holding up. Um, the polls vary as to exactly how well they're doing, um, uh, but all of them have them up. All of them suggest they're going to make gains and that should at least be perhaps around 41, 42 SNP MPs, but maybe a little few more. And the real question is, will the Democrats end up at not much more than the 12 they got last time, in which case my forecast is going to be wrong, or do they end up with clearly more than the 26? seats that they had a dissolution, in which case I could still be right. So uh, my, my fate is in the hands of the Democrats, which um, no, we might both agree not, is not necessarily the safest of safety nets to be in. That's not the, the most sturdy nail to hang your jacket on in my uh, experience. Uh, Sir John, you mentioned the SNP and Scotland. It's a paradox, isn't it? Because there's a poll this week shows support for Scottish so-called independence, Scottish breakaway, uh, considerably down, four points or more down on what they got in the last referendum. In other words, a Scottish polity which is more pro-union, uh, but likely nonetheless to elect more separatist MPs. Well, let's just re revise back a bit. Um, what's been going on in Scotland until the last couple of polls, there's one today, one yesterday, uh, the polls have been showing a clear increase in support for independence as compared with 2015, running at about 49%. Then we had a poll uh, that was released on Saturday that had it down at 43, and another one today that has it at 47. So it does seem to have slipped back a bit. Um, but bear in mind that, I mean, even though the SNP are doing relatively well, we're talking about poll figures of between 38 and 44% for the support for the SNP. So the level of support for the SNP isn't simply synonymous with a level of support for independence. Um, and to that extent, at least, we shouldn't be surprised that we get a bit of a disjuncture. I think what's, however, still true about the position of Scotland, even though perhaps the numbers have eased, is that support for yes amongst Remain voters is still up on where it was 12 months ago. It seems to have been amongst no voters that the uh, decline in support, sorry, the, um, amongst Leave voters the decline in support has happened. And that therefore, insofar as one of the findings of the last 12 months has been that people's attitudes towards independence is now more clearly linked to their views about 
um, uh, a, a Brexit than they once were. That that force, that potential force, that if indeed the UK does leave the European Union, uh, that as a result maybe support for independence in Scotland would go up yet further. Indeed, today's polls suggest that it would be a majority for independence if um, the UK leaves the European Union on the 31st of January. And I think certainly if there is a Conservative administration, a majority Conservative administration that's pursued Brexit and is wanting to say no to a Scottish independence referendum, shall we say I suspect that ideology is going to have to be replaced with statecraft if indeed the UK government is going to manoeuvre things in such a way that Scotland doesn't want to sue for independence because it's certainly going to be quite difficult uh, to avoid a situation where A, the SNP together with the Greens win the Scottish election in 2021 and the, and the polls perhaps beginning to show that there is a majority for independence north of the border. Just in parenthesis, uh, the Liberal leader, will she hold her seat in Scotland in your view? Uh, I, 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 would, I would expect her to do so. Um, I mean, uh, her opponent and the person who defeated her in 2015, John Nicholson, has come to the conclusion it would be better to fight another seat, and he's gone off to Ockle. Um, and I, you know, actually, by the standards of Scotland, um, uh, uh, Joe Swinson has a relatively safe seat. The Liberal Democrats are up. Um, it's not clearly a seat that the SNP are heavily targeting, so I would be, I would be surprised if she were to lose that seat. She's got quite a substantial personal vote, uh, amongst other things, in that constituency. Now, let's uh, finally, and I'm grateful for your time. Uh, the uh, the election result, a majority for the Conservative Party, not the kind of majorities you and I have known before, a hundred, a hundred plus, uh, that both Blair and the Conservatives. Uh, under Mrs. Thatcher, indeed, John yeah. Major got the biggest ever Conservative Party vote uh, in, uh, in 1992. Uh, let's assume, though, a, a working majority. Labour, with that breach that you talk about, with uh, the traditional uh, section of its, uh, of its base, presumably looks for a new leader. We learn from the Sunday Times today that the interim leader will be John McDonnell, and knowing John McDonnell as I do, that might be quite a long interim. Uh, <laughs> that eventually, what, what is Labour going to have to do, or can it do anything to repair that breach? Well, I mean, Brexit has undoubtedly caused the Labour Party difficulty. It's kind of widened a, a tension that's always been there between its more traditional, more working-class support that tends to be relatively socially conservative, so concerned about issues about immigration, um, and uh, which is and which has been loosened from the party's grasp as a result of Brexit. And much of its newer support, I mean, the party does very well amongst younger voters, particularly young graduates, uh, socially liberal folk. Um, and that tension is it's been going to be difficult for Labour to resolve for so long as our relationship with the European Union and the issue of immigration is central to the UK political agenda. And although the Prime Minister is promising to get Brexit done by the 31st of January, Brexit is not going to be off the agenda quite that quickly. So that is a problem facing the party. We could well see Labour doing relatively well in London, nothing like so well in its uh, traditional heartlands, the north of England and the Midlands, and Labour's going to have to sort this out. I think most immediately that the, the, the debate is going to, or the, the, the argument and the battle for power inside the party is probably going to be between a nominee who is reckoned to be close to Corbyn and the ideas that Jeremy Corbyn's been trying to pursue, so somebody like Rebecca Long-Bailey Long or perhaps Laura Pidcott, 
or is it going to be one of those less left-wing members of the party, but who have been loyal to Corbyn and have remained inside the shadow cabinet, people like Keir Starmer or Emily Thornberry, who are perhaps rather more to the centre of the party, um, and it's a question of which of the, uh, those two directions Labour decides to take. At the end of the day, Labour's real problem, however, is it, again, it, it's not so much its policies being too left-wing or whatever. Much of what the uh, Jeremy Corbyn and his colleagues have tried to espouse are quite popular. The difficulty they have faced is they haven't been able to persuade people that Jeremy Corbyn is somebody who could deliver that agenda, or indeed can deliver some fairly traditional things like running the health service. So the party above all has to find somebody, irrespective of what wing they're on, that's actually capable of convincing people that they will be capable of being this country's prime minister. Our poll, John, for what it's worth so far, 35% think Labour will win. 44% think the Conservatives will win, and 21% think a hung parliament. That's uh, an interesting... Uh, because, yeah, I mean, I that's 65% think either the Tories are Your folk are much more um, optimistic for Labour than I would be. I think, to be honest, Labour's chances of winning an overall majority are virtually zero. Professor Sir John Curtis, I take my hat off to you, metaphorically, of course, and I hope that we can talk again after the polls and we can uh, see who was right and who was wrong. It's usually you, I know. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, okay. Professor Sir John Curtis. Now, uh, earlier uh, this week, I did my usual short for RT. It was in the wake of the terror attack that took place on London Bridge. If we're ready for it, Let's take a look now at that. The terrorist murderer, Islamist fanatic Usman Khan is surely now burning in one of the circles of hell. And that is the best place for him. Before I go further, I need to make this clear. The only good ISIS terrorist is a dead one and we have to kill them everywhere that they show their ugly death cult faces. But a number of questions arise from the London events on London Bridge on Friday which are not so easily or clearly answered. First of all, the have-a-go heroes who disarmed this terrorist murderer and thereby saved the lives of an unknown number of people. It's said that Khan even had a gun in a plastic bag, as well as two knives and what turned out to be a fake suicide belt. The have-a-go heroes, except in one case, a Polish chef, were all themselves convicted criminals and prisoners on day release or on license. And one of the most heroic of them was himself, not that long ago, convicted of an horrific and absolutely unprovoked murder of a disabled young girl. Food for a lot of philosophical discussion in that one. But the government have questions to answer too. Why was Usman Khan able to be released from prison Less than halfway through, halfway would have been bad enough, the 16-year prison sentence he was given for being an Al-Qaeda cell 
which was planning to blow up, amongst other people, Boris Johnson, then Mayor of London. He planned to blow up the Houses of Parliament, to blow up the Stock Exchange and other parts of the city. Secondly, he was wearing an electronic tag, which we now know means absolutely nothing at all. Because if wearing an electronic tag, you can go to the scene of the crime you were convicted of planning and conspiring with Al-Qaeda to commit, then who's monitoring the electronic tags? There he was in the city of London that he had been in prison for intending to blow sky high. The third point is, how can anyone believe the protestations of this death cult when they write letters to the authorities saying that they are now wholly reformed. From my point of view, if we must imprison them rather than kill them, they have to serve the entirety of the sentence that they are given. We cannot afford a liberal civil rights namby-pamby approach to this question. But other issues, I'm afraid, cannot be avoided. I have made 500, maybe a thousand, speeches on Britain's foreign policy and how it has contributed to the cascading of this fanatic Islamist extremism all over the world. In this short video, suffice to make one point I've made many times before. If Usman Khan had taken his gun and his two sharp knives and a real suicide belt and gone to Syria to murder Syrians, well, the British government would probably have paid his fare because we have spent the last nearly 10 years actually putting knives, guns, money, propaganda and intelligence support in the hands of people exactly like Usman Khan on the immoral principle that my enemy's enemy is my friend. Well, your enemy's enemy might be even uglier than your enemy. And by making your enemy's enemy stronger, of course, it's certain that when your enemy's enemy comes back home, he's going to be looking for people here to murder. So, food for thought, of course from London Bridge on all kinds of levels. The government have some explaining to do about how Khan managed to be on London Bridge in the first place. The rest of us have got some soul searching to do about the fact that even murderers, even hardened criminals can do good sometimes and we as a country have got to ally with all of those around the world who are fighting to destroy ISIS and Al-Qaeda. There is no point and no case for opposing ISIS on London Bridge, but supporting them in Aleppo and Damascus. Have something to say? Do you disagree with George? Then call us now and give us your view. Record numbers of viewers and listeners uh, again, and it's only...
quarter to eight, spread the word that we're on and what we're talking uh, about. The poll I gave you, 35 think Labour will win. Professor Sir John Curtis thinks the chances of a Labour majority are practically zero. Uh, the Conservatives, 44% of you think they will win and 21% think it will be a hung parliament. All kinds of emails and tweets. Let me get through a couple, then we'll take a couple of calls. Uh, I see John Major is making headlines again. What is it with these people? He came, he ruled, he was disgraced, but he really does struggle with the need to simply retire somewhere and leave the rest of us alone. Very, very interesting. That's from James. Uh, when I saw John Major and Tony Blair together this week, straining, straining to try to stop Brexit. I did wonder if it might have the opposite effect. Tony says Labour became an Islington cabal and forgot their roots. They're more concerned about identity politics. The rest of us are too busy working to make a decent living to be bothered by such things. Brexit will ruin Labour. And Manfred, this is an interesting one, been trying to contact you for weeks to let you know you have a following here in Havana, Cuba, where a bunch of us expats, I'm from Australia, despite the German moniker, others are from France and England, watch you every week on YouTube. I would gladly follow you to the barricades if asked. The ultimate test for us, keep doing your wonderful unmasking of the filthy rich and their lackeys in your inimitable way. We love you, mate, from Manfred in Havana, Cuba. Can't tell you how nice that feels. Thank you so much. Let's uh, hear from Kieran in Herefordshire. Kieran, the floor is yours. Thank you. Um, yeah, a couple of points, really. And I think the first one is why people should vote for Corbyn that are having doubts. And to put Brexit to one side for a minute, I think anyone from Labour or not sure, you know, in the middle somewhere, should uh, vote, like Celtic voting for Christmas, if they vote for Conservative, if they want an NHS. I think people should really ask themselves, do I want to keep the NHS or don't I? If they vote Conservative, it's the trend, the 10-year trend of selling the office and it continues. But there's one reason the left shouldn't vote for the right. Here's the reason why the right should maybe think about voting for Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn is the only one up for election that would have the courage to tell the warmongers in the Middle East where to shove their war with Iraq. I think what's happened, one of the reasons uh, this whole anti-Semitism business has been directed at Jeremy Corbyn, I think links partly back to what Pompeo was saying, that the Americans are intervening in our election to stop Corbyn being elected. And he was speaking to a group of uh, Zionists, uh, funders it is, and um, the, the war with Iran is much less likely to happen. And if it, does, if it doesn't happen, we won't be flooded. There won't be any more waves of the asylum seekers and refugees that the right claim to not want particularly Muslim uh, right, um, asylum seekers and refugees. So, you know, there's two... And, and, and thanks for this time, by the way, George. I'm shutting up now. Um, this is... I think the whole Middle East war thing has been a mistake. Uh, 
Labour shouldn't have left it out. I think they should be speaking about this. They can be the only ones trusted to make a war with Iran less likely and asylum seekers less likely. Well, uh, there won't be many takers for that in Herefordshire, at least the last time I was in Herefordshire. Uh, how many Labour votes are going to be polled there, do you think, Kieran? Sorry, George, it's actually Hertfordshire, not Herefordshire. I beg your pardon. Hertfordshire. Uh, but don't worry. It's actually, exactly that's what it says. <laughs> actually, that's what it says. It's my fault. I'm so sorry. Uh, so uh, the, 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 point, the point I was trying to make is that if Labour is losing in its heartlands and therefore, by extension, one must infer, will fail to make a breakthrough in its target seats, the seats it didn't win last time, uh, then, and, and not making progress in, uh, in rural play. I saw, for example, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, they had some polling in his area, and he looks to be miles ahead. So Labour's going to consolidate its strength in pro-Remain areas, better off areas, paradoxically, of, uh, of England. It's not going to do well in Scotland. It's a poor, distant third in Scotland. Uh, it's ahead in Wales, but it used to weigh its vote in Wales rather than count it, uh, and it's not ahead in Wales by all that much. And, for example, Wrexham, which I think has never been a Conservative seat, the polling there shows the Conservatives miles ahead. So why do you think the arguments for voting Labour, which you have just adumbrated, have failed to make a breakthrough? Um, I think there's a massive uh, campaign I mean, what happened today with the newspapers and banging up the way they have, and not only are they, is the message that Jeremy Corbyn's already lost, the Labour have already lost, it is who is going to be the next leader. What they've done is brilliant. And I'd say to any Labour voter listening to this, just to ask themselves in their heart, would I rather be in, inside the EU with an NHS or outside of the EU without it. And, and then and my last point... Uh, no, Kieran, that's a false... Kieran, 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 sorry. Kieran, I'll let you back in. I'm sorry, but that's a false dichotomy. The NHS has been being pri privatised, not for 10 years, but for 25 years. And in that 25 years, we've been inside the EU. ...really had a genuine Labour government. If you count new Labour, which is, you know, Tory light. Yeah, but when um, we're in the EU, that's my point. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, e that, the that, EU doesn't yeah. stop privatisation. It worships privatisation. OK, I take your point on that one, but I still think it's less likely with a genuine Labour government. Well, of course, it's less likely with a Labour government, but that's irrespective of whether or not you're in the EU. It was that false dichotomy I was challenging. Kieran, thanks for the call, and my apologies about mixing up the county. I'll not mix the next one up. It's from Portugal. It's Matt in Portugal. Go ahead, Matt. Assalamu alaikum, George. Wa alaikum salam. Uh, how are you doing? I'm good. Uh, nice to hear from you. Likewise. Go ahead. The, the floor is yours. Yeah, well, uh, I suppose the Brexit issue is the main point that I was wanting to talk to you about because... Uh, 
I'm now a Portuguese citizen. I decided to remain because uh, my family is European. Uh, my daughter's European, and uh, my my parents both live in Europe as well. So uh, I've sort of taken this de decision to physically remain in Europe with disregard to anything that any polls or any uh, any sort of like. Uh, politics in Britain has got to say, because my political stance has never been like from a British perspective. I owe more allegiance to like, for example, the five star movement in Italy or the uh, Bloco de Esquerda in Portugal and the, uh, the Indignados movement in Spain, where I have been politically active. But uh, I also have participated in the European Social Forum and the World Social Forum, which I know started in Brazil in the year 2000. But when I participated, I went to Senegal in the year 2011. So uh, I made some sort of uh, political propaganda and helped to... Uh, to organize some sort of like international movements like on different levels. But what I don't really understand with this Brexit issue is that uh, like we're talking like uh, the European Union is a subsidiary of the, e, uh, the UN, right? So the British government then would be a subsidiary of the EU. So where does the G8 fit into all this? Uh, I mean, I went to protests against the G8 in Evian in 2003 or 2002 before the Iraq war broke out. And I went to the G8 protest in Rostock, Rostock in Germany. Well, look, uh, uh, look, in... Uh, Matt, this is a fascinating tour de horizon. Uh, but can you can you come to a point that I might address? Yeah, well, I mean... Substantially, then, like, what's like if I if the EU is a subsidiary of the UN and the well, British well, government you keep is saying a that? I don't understand even what that means. What do you mean a subsidiary? Well, I don't really understand what the sort of like the political dynamic is. Like, is like like the G8 is that like where the decisions are made that affect the international perspective, or is it the UN? Do you see what I'm saying? Well, like, this war in Iraq was made by the Americans and the British. It's certainly not the, uh, the UN. Of course, the short answer to you is, it's no longer any of your business whether Britain leaves the EU or not, because you've already left us and are now a citizen of Portugal. Uh, but I would never yeah. say that to a fine man uh, like yourself. Thanks very much for calling. Let's hear from Kevin in Suffolk. Kevin, welcome. Hello, mate. It's Hi. really nice to talk to you. Um, and you. Right. I, I'll try and be quick. I don't want to take up too much time. I, I've been on a long journey. I'm in my 50s. My grandparents were like Labour Party organisers in the 30s. And I, you're not going to like me, George, I gave up on Labour in the 80s. I, I um, I thought I was a Tory, basically. Um, last week, I listened to an interview with a guy called Morris Glassman, um, and that guy was a revelation. Just he's a very quite... interesting man, yes. He's the, uh, he's the guru of blue labour. 
Well, exactly. Okay. I didn't want to use that phrase because that mm. phrase, I think, puts off a lot of people. Um, but what he is talking about is the betrayal of the working class by, um, uh, I can't remember what they were called, but it's a middle class... Um, <sighs> no, it's all right. No, no, I, I, we get your point. Yeah, go on. Yeah, basically. Um, okay, it's annoying me because I can't think of the name. But anyway, so basically, um, you know, the, the, what ended up with Blair has taken over the Labour Party and was, was in the process of doing it over the, the previous sort of 40, 50 years, even under Attlee. Um, we got Roy Jenkins and his ilk in the, in the 60s. And I think, you know, totally the wrong policies have been followed. It, it not, you know... Immigration is a touchy subject, but the only way to do it was was um, to allow um, the kind of assimilation, or not assimilation, but the kind of um, coming together of the communities as happened when the Jews came here in the late 19th century. And it ended up, so the Jews are part of the British tribe. That should have been done with the immigration that happened after the war. And, and we followed this multiculturalism, we followed all these divisive policies that have, I'm sorry, I nearly swore, that have messed up this country just beyond belief. You know, it's, it's just, um, I don't know. I, I, just, I just really like listening to that guy, and I really felt connected again. I felt connected to, like, my roots. And, and you know, I don't, I've, I've uh, contacted you a few times on Twitter, George, and I don't go along with you on a lot of what you're saying, but I think... Like, you're part of the solution. I don't think Corbyn ever, ever came close to being part of the solution for anything. Um, and we could have a conversation about that. Well, but I, look, I do, I do think that the, the culture war point uh, that I made earlier uh, is valid and it doesn't uh, cut across uh, anything that Glassman will have been saying. Uh, the, the truth is, Labour has different priorities uh, in how it looks at life and looks at the country to millions, I don't know how many millions, but definitely millions of its traditional working class supporters. Uh, and Labour on its front bench and in the people that it puts on television and so on, it no, it no longer looks like the party uh, that uh, it did even when I, when I joined it. There are no James Callaghan's, there are no Dennis Healy's, there are no Tony Benz, there are no Michael Foote's. The, uh, alliance that the Labour Party used to be of working class people with middle and even upper class intellectual allies making a coalition for change, for progress, no longer uh, exists. Uh, working class people like Ian Lavery, a former minor, a minor's union official, are essentially uh, treated as mascots. Uh, by today's Labour Party. Uh, he's never sitting next to Jeremy Corbyn on the front bench. It's, it's uh, Don Butler and Diane Abbott, and I'm not sure what point is attempting to be made there, certainly when it's every single week. Uh, is, is the point that, look at us, we've got uh, black women in prominent positions? Good old. Uh, but you don't need to make that point every week. You might change it a bit, mix it up a bit. After all, 88% of the people of Britain are not black and half the people of Britain are not women. And so you might bring uh, Ian Lavery and, I don't know, Richard Bergen uh, to sit next to you 
uh, on week two. And you might mix and match it with people who are not London MPs, as both Butler and Abbott are. Do you see the point I'm making? Uh, the output from the Labour Party's Twitter feed and so on is far more likely to be on liberal and identity, not in the election, by the way. I think they've done quite a good job uh, during the election in the uh, material that they've been putting out. But in the four years before the general election, uh, they were not uh, so good. Uh, do you see the point I'm making, Kevin? George, absolutely. Look, the point, the point with Diane Abbott is not that she's a black woman. The point is that, with all due respect, she... It's just ludicrous that she's in the position she's in. She hasn't mastered the brief, you know. If, if you've got a black person, a black woman, whatever, who is competent and authoritative and a natural... You know, look, I mean, I'm not an Obama fan, but, you know, that guy um, absolutely controlled the narrative, you know. Um, I mean, it's, it's all, you know, that's all beside the point. But, um, I, I've, I've, yeah, I forgot no, what I was going to... No, don't Sorry. worry. Uh, it's been a really interesting call, uh, Kevin. I hope that uh, we continue either on Twitter... Oh, uh, Sorry. ...or Can on I... here. I've got to take a break now unfortunately, for the news. But here's the poll at the moment. 36% of you think there'll be a Labour win in the general election. That's 35% more than... No, that's 36% more than Professor Sir John Curtis predicted. That's gone up one. The Conservatives remain on 44% and a hung parliament on 20%, which is down one. You can continue to vote on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. The poll closes at... 9 p.m. The first hour's by. The good news, there's two more hours just like this still to come. Stay tuned to the mother of all talk shows. Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. This is Dominic Carter, a political reporter in New York for Verizon Files TV News. This is Dr. Bill Honigman, Progressive Democrats of America, PDAmerica.org. Hey, everybody. My name is Tim Black of the Tim Black Show. This is Tom Luongo of Gold Coast and Guns. Hello, this is Benny Johnson. Hi, this is Juanita Broderick, author of You'd Better Put Some Ice on That. This is Jamal Thomas from the Progressive Soapbox. Hey, this is Raheem from D.C. This is Rachel Blevins, a correspondent with RT America, and you're listening to Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan. When I'm waking up in the morning and I'm looking for what's on the queue for today, I tune to Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan. The wokest radio show for your wokest AM. These guys are the best in the business and experts when it comes to policy. They're bringing you the top headlines with an angle that you won't see in the mainstream media. Fall Lines is the greatest show on the radio. I enjoy immensely talking with Lee and Garland. They always treat me uh, from either side with due respect, and it's a wonderful conversation. The best morning news show in America. Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan. Lee and Garland speak truth to power from the depths of the swamp itself, right here on Radio Sputnik. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com.
Radio Sputnik News. A large fire has swept through a bag factory in the Indian capital of Delhi, killing 43 workers, officials say. More than 60 people have been rescued and firefighters had to carry out victims on their shoulders one by one. The blaze broke out early on Sunday morning, starting on the lower stories first before spreading rapidly to the third floor where at least 100 workers were sleeping. Prime Minister Narendra Modi called the fire horrific and sent his condolences. Tens of thousands of protesters have marched through the streets of Hong Kong in the largest anti-government rally in months. For the first time since August, police allowed a rally by the pro-democracy group Civil Human Rights Front. Organisers said that an estimated 800,000 took part, while police put the number at just over 180,000. Police also said that 11 people were arrested in raids ahead of the rally and that a handgun was seized. The process started in June over a controversial extradition bill and have now evolved into broader anti government demonstrations. In a statement on Saturday, the government called for calm and said that it had learned its lesson and will humbly listen to and accept criticism. And in the countdown to the British general election, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has claimed that a leaked Treasury document about checks on the Northern Ireland border is wrong. Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn obtained the document, claiming that it proves there will be customs checks between Great Britain and Northern Ireland after Brexit. Johnson has claimed that the only checks would be on British exports to the Republic of Ireland going via Northern Ireland. However, this is contradicted not just by Labour, but by political and economic analysts who maintain that because of EU law, products would have have to be checked even if they were not going to the Republic of Ireland. Next, cold and afraid, a five-year-old child carried her younger sibling half a mile to safety in freezing temperatures following a blackout. The five-year-old and 18-month-old arrived at the neighbor's home, suffering from injuries relating to cold weather. The five-year-old became scared when the power went out and carried the 18-month-old approximately half a mile to the neighbor's home. A 37-year-old woman has been arrested on suspicion of endangering the welfare of a child. And finally, it sold for £120,000, that's just over £91,000, last week. But the artwork of a banana duct taped to a wall has now been scoffed. The performance artist David Detuna posted videos online showing himself peeling the fruit from the wall and consuming it in front of a crowd at an art exhibition in Miami. He described eating the banana as an art performance and said that the installation by Italian artist Maurizio Catalan was very delicious. Fortunately for the buyer, the work was apparently sold with a certificate of authenticity with the owners allowed to replace the fruit as and when it is needed. That's Sputnik News, I'm Jamie Lowe. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway, only on Sputnik Radio. You're watching or listening or both to the mother of all talk shows on multiple platforms every Sunday evening at this time. This is the second hour and there's another one after this. We spent the first talking largely about the British general election. We're about to switch our purview to the international issues of the day, and of course, to the US domestic one, where President Trump is facing impeachment. But you can still vote on our poll who will win the British general election. Now, the geniuses that brought you the destruction 
uh, of Iraq and Afghanistan repeated their genius in Libya and tried to do so in Syria, but have mercifully failed, though they will not stop trying. In Libya, which was the richest country in Africa, uh, there is now virtually no state at all. The doors have been blown open onto the Mediterranean, and much of Africa is trying at least to head for the European continent. With knock-on effects in the political systems in countries like Greece and Italy and Spain and France, and of course, even here in Britain, though precious few of those refugees ever make it to this particular island. Uh, the consequences, though, for the Libyan people are far more grim. Uh, Libya became, for a time, and I don't think it has entirely ended, uh, a slave market for black people who were literally being traded as slaves. Uh, the country broke into effectively three, maybe 23, Different emirates where warlords and their own militias uh, ruled the roost. There are three parliaments and there were at least four prime ministers. None of those parliaments controlled the territory beyond their own congestion charge area and none of these prime ministers has more than a modicum of authority across the country. There is war, war and war where... The people were promised a peace, freedom, and democracy. You'll recall that President Sarkozy and the then Prime Minister David Cameron proclaimed all of that uh, from a balcony in Benghazi. They wouldn't be able to restage that stunt because, well, no one is safe in Benghazi. The former Libyan Minister for Culture and information became a familiar face and voice in the British media towards the end of the rule of Colonel Gaddafi. He was, is, Dr. Musa Ibrahim, and he joins me on the line now. Dr. Ibrahim, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the Mother of All talk shows. It's good to see you uh, safe. I feared for your safety for uh, some time. Uh, give us your take on what's happened to your country this far in the democratic era ushered in by NATO. <clears throat> Thank you, George. I'm absolutely honored uh, to be uh, with you on this show. Thank you. I have been listening to you for more than 20 years since I was a student uh, in the UK in the late uh, 90s. I have seen you fight uh, the fight against injustice, not just in Britain, which uh, you care for so deeply, as I saw with my own eyes, but injustice everywhere. You have been consistent, you have been uh, honest, and people can go back to any uh, previous decade and see that you have been saying the same things over and over, a very a uh, remarkable thing for uh, a modern era politician. Thank I you, respect you. I respect you for that. And uh, the work you do uh, is, is influential 
and it helps people to understand what is going on around the world. Um, my country uh, was a leading African country with a genuine and inspirational African and Libyan uh, liberation project. Gaddafi and the thousands of people who worked with him, I'm only one of them, uh, really planned, uh, funded financially and culturally and politically uh, a project that aimed to establish the African Central Bank, the African Unified Currency, the African Unified Army, the African Unified Satellite System, uh, and uh, these were not just dreams, they were not just talk, but they were actual uh, projects on, on the ground. And Gaddafi was working very hard to help Africa become independent from the West, from the global capitalist center, which still enslaves uh, the country as every single piece of research and study proves year after year. Only um, two years ago, a major study, international one, came out that exposed what they call the new scramble for Africa, mm. in which, with figures and numbers, hard uh, economics, uh, they proved that more than 140 billion euros flow out of Africa to European banks with no benefit to the, uh, to the continent. The Europeans were extremely worried about what Libya was leading. They knew that Libya, just as any developing country, had internal problems, conflicts, some failures even, very not natural for a developing country. It had its tribal uh, structure. It had uh, weaknesses on the political front. And they, uh, as usual, they had the money, the West, they had the experts, the intellectuals, the politicians. So they mounted a false revolution, uh, a revolution that was very weak, very limited, uh, very marginalized. Uh, most, the vast majority of the Libyan people refused it. They wanted uh, changes to take place in the country but they never wanted to destroy their own country or ally themselves with the very forces that kept occupying the country and destroying it for decades and decades since the 19th century, starting from the Italians to the French to the British and the Americans. But the global mainstream media, uh, the uh, tools for global capitalism, such as the UN and the European Union, they gave this revolution the momentum it needed. And within a week, I mean, how could a revolution just take a week before you give it a full international support and air bombardment by NATO two weeks later? And uh, the reason was very simple and very straightforward. We knew it from the very beginning. They uh, were afraid, the West, the capital, when I say the West, of course, I do not unify. I mean the capitalist center of global imperialism. They, uh, they warned us, they talked to us in 2008 and, and 9, 2010. I was part of some of these talks, and they warned us about what we were doing in, in Africa. What happened 
uh, after that, total destruction of Libya, the initiation of terrorism in the country, the building up of uh, tribal and Islamist militias, the loss of sovereignty of Libya, the rob of national uh, wealth, like oil especially, uh, complete uh, Libya, complete dependency on, uh, on the West and the UN, a story very similar to Iraq and was going to be similar to Syria. And uh, the results in Africa are even bigger because all of the projects of liberation have stopped and they were replaced, George, by new imperialist projects. So instead of the African unified army, which Gaddafi supported with hard money, now you have the uh, American AFRICOM, African command, and you have the French G5S military force in the west of the uh, continent. And instead of the uh, African Central Bank, which would have saved billions in African currency and African wealth, you have the complete control of the French Central Bank uh, and the London uh, Stock Exchange of the, uh, of the African natural resources. And uh, instead of uh, uh, the African Union developing and um, uh, becoming more solid, more powerful, now uh, the African Union is a weak, marginalized organization that has no rule in the African continent. And all of this because the base country, Libya, and the leader who took it upon himself to help Africa liberate itself were attacked, were uh, black named, and their reputation was attacked in a very vicious way. Uh, the results of this throughout what now? Eight years prove that everything we said and everything we tried to explain about what was happening in Libya uh, was correct. Even the British, and I'm happy to say, this is something good about British politics. There's a complexity, there's a degree of, of difference and some color. Uh, the uh, British Parliamentarian Committee, high-ranking, high-level, very well-funded, that worked for two years to examine the British intervention in Libya, came out with one major conclusion, that all of the accusations and justifications for the attack against Libya in 2011 were either completely fabricated or at least greatly exaggerated to mount this war against my country. Well, that's as powerful uh, an opening series of shots as we've ever heard here on the mother of all talk shows, and I'm grateful to you for it. Uh, that was truly a tour de force that will live, I think, in the uh, ether, in the atmosphere, in the internet for a very long time to come. So thank you uh, for that. Uh, one of the many powerful points that you made uh, was the uh, extraordinary uh, phenomenon of the Western news media literally cheering on exactly the same kind of Islamist fanatic head choppers in Libya uh, that they would be determined to shoot down dead in the streets here in our own country. We ourselves, and I was just less than one mile away when the Islamist fanatic Libyan British citizen 
facilitated by the British state, rescued by the Royal Navy, given succor and comfort by the British state over many years, he and his uh, small community, the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, the clue being in the name, I was less than a mile away when he blew himself and all those little children dead apart, ripped them apart in the Manchester arena. So it's difficult for me not to get angry as I recall the phenomenon that you describe. Let me ask you, to what extent is Libya's current division a division that is tribally based? And to what extent is it based on interpretations of Islamism? Are there theological, ideological divisions between all these warlords? Or do they just wear uh, their uh, Islam on their sleeve to justify their own uh, warlordism? Well, George, it's a game that the British and Europeans in general have perfected since first initiating it in the 19th century, which is basically to come to a particularly stable context that they want to rob. So what they do, they introduce some sort of a crisis based on the internal condition of this political context. And of course, to do that, you have to study the country you want to rob. And that is why then you come into the use of intelligentsia and the use of academic research, intellectuals, clever people who will tell you how this particular context is vulnerable in this particular way. Think of India, think of South Africa, think of North Africa, think of South America. And for Libya, they studied the Libyan uh, uh, context and they understood that although it's a very stable, very rich, very prospering country, but as any nation in the world, it has its internal vulnerabilities. So it has a tribal system that has worked well for decades. And it has the religion of Islam with its connotations with terrorism. And it has the oil wealth and when you have a revenue-based economy, you have some sort of uh, not very productive or participatory relationship to the economy as a citizen, but reliance on oil. And this is a weakness. There is also the placement of Libya within the Arab and African contexts, also weak and vulnerable in other ways. So the Europeans worked on this. For years, we were aware of some of this work, even before 2011. And when they came, they used the same uh, Islamist threat. Uh, the British are very uh, versed in Islamic terrorism. They initiated it decades, even from the 19th century in the Indian uh, situation. And they knew the leaders of terrorism by name. Not just that, but it's a very well-known fact. This is not a revelation I'm giving to your audience. When the biggest and most dangerous Islamist terrorists came back victorious, of course, from Afghanistan, 
very well trained, very well funded, and feeling like with their spirits high because they defeated the Soviet Union. Where did they go? Did they come back to Libya or to Saudi Arabia or to Syria? No, they went to Manchester. They went to Newcastle. They went to London and they opened up mosques or dominated the already existing mosques. Arab countries, whether they are progressive countries like Libya, Syria, Algeria, or reactionary countries like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, they have been demanding that Britain abandons these terrorists and give them up. But Britain never did because it knew at that time that it had a powerful weapon that it could unleash against any government in the Middle East. And they did that indeed with great success in Iraq. They did that with success to start with, but then a failure in Syria, in Libya. All of the big names of Islamic terrorism, Abdel Hakim Bilhaj, Ali Salabi, Sliman Labedi, Abu Yahya Libi, all of these major, major figures with money, with training, with followers, all of them were based in Manchester, Newcastle, Liverpool, and other great British cities. So now they are being used within the tribal uh, framework, because Libya, to get things going, you have to get the families and the clans and the tribes moving with you. Most of the tribal social framework is coherent and patriotic and refuses to collaborate. But as you know, George, to destroy a country, you only need two to three percent of that country collaborating with you. If you have five, I mean, you had like one terrorist attacking the public in Manchester and the horror is too much to take. Imagine if there are 10,000. That's a minute figure. But 10,000 terrorists in a country like Britain, they will make life impossible. And this is what happened in Libya. They have these thousands of terrorists collaborating with a small, limited number of tribal uh, clans or families, supported and funded greatly by France, Turkey, Britain, and Italy, especially, more than, for example, the states. The states is less involved for its own reasons. And then what you, what you want them to do is just to spread chaos. And then what you do, you manage this chaos. You manage it so it does not hit you back, or if it does hit you back, it hits you back in a way that you can bear it, that your system, your powerful capitalist developed system can take it in. And why do you do that? For many reasons. One of them, to keep Libya or any other context weak and unable to become independent or spread revolution, genuine revolution this time, in a bigger context like the African one. And secondly, to uh, uh, plant terror and horror in other countries and other genuine leaders who can ever or could ever think about becoming independent from, uh, from, from the West and also to test the ground for new political systems that would finally submit to the West. So the West now is not sure what government to support in Libya, what faction of society. Uh, they want to 
prolong the crisis so they can rob the oil for more years, so they can sell more weapons as they do. They do that in Saudi Arabia, they do this in Libya, secretly, of course, in Libya, because it's banned by the UN. And they, they test the waters for what kind of political system, what kind of culture they should finally support and make victorious so they guarantee that a lasting heritage of dependency, of subordination takes place in the country and becomes the heritage and the culture of that country instead of Gaddafi's heritage, which is a heritage of revolution, of resistance, of liberation. Uh, this interview will live uh, long uh, in the memory, uh, as I say, certainly in mine. I'm sure I speak for the audience. One final question, doctor. Uh, can Libya survive all of this? Can Libya come back? Are people like you now in the political museum? Or can you again uh, play a part in uh, change, progressive change in your country? Absolutely. We are in the heart of every matter in Libya. I assure you, George, I know this can be a little bit hard to see from outside, but the vast majority, when, and when I say the vast, I mean more than 80-90% of the population are unified against the Western imperialist project in the country. There are internal divisions and some differences but for example, now the Libyan army, the Libyan armed forces, they have gathered most of the tribes in the country, in the east, in the south, and most of the tribes in the west. The only pockets that are controlled by the west are in the capital and two or three other cities around it. And they only resist the advance of the Libyan armed forces supported by most Libyan tribes because of the heavy, the heavy funding and the, 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 the arms, the advanced arms that are given to them by mainly Turkey, Italy, and France, with major diplomatic support, not weapons, but diplomatic and financial support from the UK. We are now, in 2019, stronger. We are much more optimistic. Our spirits are very high. The culture of liberation, the heritage of the Green Revolution of Libya, Gaddafi's revolution, lives on. The West, they know that. They started a year ago negotiating with us, talking directly to us. I have met many uh, of the leaders of the European Union and uh, European politicians face to face, and they always say it, that they know that Libya is going to go back to the, uh, the culture of liberation, to the uh, ideas of Gaddafi. They just want to have some sort of an agreement with us so we do not go back to our African liberation project. They are extremely, George, concerned that if their robbing of African natural resources stops, this will be the biggest crisis that Europe will face for, for a long, long, long time. So I assure you, resistance is there, and we are winning the battle. We are winning uh, the hearts and minds of our people, and we are advancing step by step and building up 
our uh, new Libya and we will be victorious and we will come here and talk about it one day, George. God willing, I could hear a cheer breaking out across the audience, across the world for that Thank wonderful, you. wonderful uh, final statement. Thank you very much indeed, Dr. Mosa Ibrahim. May God go with you and protect you. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. By any means necessary is your guide to the movement and efforts shaping the world around us from mass incarceration. No longer am I interested in or concerned with prison reform. I am interested only in the eradication of prisons. To the battle between police and water protectors. It was a pretty punishing disregard for the sanctity of human life that unleashing water cannons on peaceful, prayerful water protectors. From efforts to protect the environment. The climate movement is ready to, with plenty of opposition research and force and strength, along with, you know, the right of both science and morality to fight them on this. To the movement for black lives. When I first saw the Michael Brown video and I saw that it clearly contradicted the narrative put forth uh, by the Ferguson Police Department and by police supporters in general, three words came to mind. Color me shocked. Stay tuned to By Any Means Necessary, five days a week here on Radio Sputnik. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. George Galloway and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. We are talking... 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are listening. We give you the most essential out of the endless information space. Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. The mother of all talk shows. The only education you can get for free. Only on Sputnik Radio. I'm sorry, I'm running uh, way behind schedule. Uh, I allowed that interview to go on much longer than scheduled because I thought it was particularly important and I hope that you did too. Which is one way of saying to my dear friend, the wonderful Alena, that I'm going to have to cut her short. Uh, so Alena, tell us quickly, give us an overview of the social media feedback, will you? Uh, well, first of all, um, new countries that we could add to the list of okay. our listeners. It's Greece, Portugal, Israel, Cuba and Norway. Wonderful. How fantastic um, is that? Yeah, so there's been quite a lot of comments on general elections. Yeah. Um, people seem to be quite split. Um, some people are saying that if Tories get in, I'm out. Um, other people are convinced that Tories are going to win and... I think Cuba might get a boost. There might be a number of British people heading for Cuba if the tourists get back. <laughs> it's warm, it's exactly. left-wing. Why, why not? <laughs> um, but here this um, Bilo is making quite an interesting point. He's saying um, you can only blame Labour in this because um, they turned their back on Brexit and didn't honour the democratic vote. Um, I think that's a big issue, yeah. Sorry to say. Oh. I'm sorry to say. Can I cut you short there? Mm -hmm. Maybe bring you back in later if we get a chance. <laughs> Thanks sure. so much, uh, Alena. I appreciate that. Sorry, we're way behind schedule. Uh, an email from Chris Conway in Derry in Ireland 
says the OPCW whistleblower story has been covered by such journalists as Max Blumenthal and Peter Hitchens. What do you think about the deafening silence on the part of the mainstream media? Well, Chris, I think you know what I think uh, about that. Dennis says, further to your comments, you might remember Father Jacques Hamel murdered in his church in France. One of his killers was on a tag. Of course, Mrs. May, her predecessors and successors will continue to fund these lunatics. In Mrs. May's case, I don't think she had the ability to know what was happening under her watch. I think Boris does. Great show. Regards. Dennis, thank you, Dennis. Uh, amazing how many selfish people we have in Britain for Tories to even still exist. Never mind these statistics, says a tweeter with a name too rude for me to read. Steve says, I don't trust polls. They were almost all wrong last general election. Don't get me wrong. Labour have a mountain to climb, but there are a lot of people pig sick of austerity. And why vote Tory to get Brexit when Johnson's deal is worse than May's and won't get Brexit for years, if at all? And Philip says, MPs leave or remain need to be reminded. When we vote, they listen and carry out our instructions, like it or not. We can never allow them to decide what they do with our vote. The vote is precious and equal and must be honoured regardless. And David Wilson says, this being Twitter, most are Labour supporters, even if some are realistic about their chances. When Labour lose, they need to look at themselves for the reasons and not make ridiculous excuses to do with Russians, buses, stupid voters or anything else. And Bobby47 says, I've voted Labour all my life. Sadly, now to confirm my old science teacher's prediction, I've now hit rock bottom and voted Tory. Uh, Lizzie says Labour and a few independents will win, you including. Thank you. That's the legend. Uh, Lizzie, we haven't heard from her for a while. We haven't actually had a woman caller uh, this evening, but we are uh, in the next uh, 20 minutes or so going to have a very special uh, woman guest. But before Manila Chan, uh, the news anchor from RT America, let me turn, as I like to, to the On This Day segment. Those of us of a certain age remember exactly where we were when John Lennon was killed. It was on this day in 1980 that Mark Chapman shot the former Beatle four times in the back. I remember it very vividly. My then wife and I had a radio alarm clock which came on just in time for the seven o'clock news. And that, of course, was the first item on the news. Neither of us said anything to each other and both of us openly wept. John Lennon's assassin claimed that he heard voices telling him to do it. After he was convicted, Chapman claimed to have heard another voice, God's, but his apparent religious conversion did not wash with the parole panel who have refused to release him from prison 10 times. Chapman earlier in the evening had asked John for an autograph outside the Dakota buildings in New York, where John and Yoko had apartments. He waited for John's return at around 11 p.m. and shot him. Lennon apparently took five or six steps 
into the vestibule of the apartment block before collapsing. It would have been the birthday today of another rock star, Jim Morrison of The Doors, whose grave I visited in Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris, a truly magnificent cemetery with all kinds of famous and interesting people buried there. And Jim Morrison is one of those. He was born on this day in 1943. He was to die like Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and Kurt Cobain at the age of just 27. Rather spooky. Going back several decades, it was on this day, the day after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, that the United States entered the Second World War in 1941, with both the US and Britain declaring war on Japan. In the aerial bombardment of Pearl Harbor, 2,400 Americans were killed and 18 ships were sunk, including five battleships. Later in the week, Germany and Italy declared war on the United States. And it was on this day in 1983 that television cameras were allowed into Britain's House of Lords. Why, one asks, did they bother? Well, um, I was there, uh, of course, um, on that day. And if not on the first day, uh, then not long after the television cameras were allowed in, a group of lesbian protesters swinging from climbing ropes swung back and forth across the House of Lords chamber. I'm not making this up. But the rules of the House of Lords cameras was that they were only allowed to focus on the members. And so the viewer could see only, like a tennis match, the Lords, those of them still sentient, those of them still upright, following from side to side in the House of Lords, these lesbian Vikings that were swinging across the chamber that no one else in the country could see. Look it up, it's all true. And finally, on this day in 1872, Brigham Young, the second leader of the Mormons after Joseph Smith and the founder of Salt Lake City, married his 55th wife. He was, he was 71. Now, telephone numbers. I've been asked to uh, announce them um, because not enough uh, people have yet called. Uh, so it's 0207 and the US number 001-757-744-4480. You can also tweet me, of course, at George Galloway, at RTUK. Here's a famous uh, place, West Brom. Let's speak to Jason on line one. Jason, welcome. Good evening, George. How are you doing, sir? By the grace of God, I'm good. Thank you very much. Excellent. George, um, the question I'd like to put to you is regarding uh, not only, well, the general election of this year, obviously, which is the main talking point of everybody within the UK at the moment, yeah. um, but more specifically the Labour Party itself. 
there's three going to be three possible scenarios on Friday, as we all know. It's either going to be a complete Labour whitewash, like the polls are suggesting, or Labour might uh, just seek a victory <laughs> somehow, um, or it's obviously going to be a hung parliament. Um, how do you see the future of the Labour Party going forward in regards to all three of those scenarios? Uh, I would, I'm presuming myself if the Labour Party get absolutely battered, it would spell the end of Corbyn, the Blairites would be rejoicing, and it would probably be the end of the Labour Party like you and I know it from years and years ago, which is an absolute crying shame. Um, but then if they do manage to sneak you in, what then happens? Um, Corbyn obviously cannot then be battered by his own backbenchers and his own MPs and own councillors. Surely then the Blairites have got to step down and let Corbyn run the party how he sees fit. How, how do you feel on that? Well, it's a very, uh, a very good call, uh, Jason. Uh, absolutely, uh, the uh, what we used to call the sixty-four thousand dollar questions when sixty-four thousand dollars was uh, worth a lot more uh, than it is today. Um, let's take those three scenarios. Although, as Professor Sir John Curtis said, there is practically zero chance of Labour winning an overall majority. Uh, but if they did win an overall majority, Jeremy Corbyn would be the Prime Minister unless the Blairites let down his tyres on his bicycle uh, outside the house and he can't get to Buckingham Palace and one of them gets there instead. Uh, but all joking apart, uh, then Jeremy Corbyn would be the Prime Minister and he would have a majority to do the things he said he's going to do. But as we, I think, both know, there's very little chance of that happening. The second option, uh, namely the Tories losing their majority, or rather failing to recover their majority, because, of course, they actually already lost it before dissolving the last parliament, uh, that will be a very turbulent uh, period indeed. First of all, would the smaller parties uh, agree to Jeremy Corbyn being the prime minister of a minority government with their support. Uh, the chances of that, in my view, are quite slim. Uh, the liberals in particular would be determined to extract their pound of flesh like they did in 2010 when Nick Clegg claimed that he would go into coalition with Labour, but only if they got rid of Gordon Brown. I feel sure that the Liberal Democrats would play the same role. The Scottish Nationalists, who may have, as we heard earlier, 40 or 41 seats, will be in a position, if they want to, to extract big concessions from Labour uh, in order for them to support, prop up a minority Labour government. One of those could be uh, the removal of Jeremy Corbyn, uh, but more likely one of those will be uh, demand for a new independence referendum, meaning that Britain would have not one but two uh, new referendums, reruns actually, of uh, two referenda uh, in the next 12 months. And you can imagine not much else will get done in Britain next year if we have to rerun a European Union referendum and in Scotland rerun a Scottish independence uh, referendum. There will be all kinds of forces moving to try and prevent Jeremy Corbyn leading uh, such a minority administration and 
bringing about those two referendums. It'll be a very rocky time. And we'll be back for a new general election fairly soon afterwards. So those who are campaigning now, don't put away your campaign boots because you might have to do it all again next year. Most likely, I think we both know, Jason, is that the Tories will have a workable majority and they will put through their Brexit uh, deal and we will leave the EU uh, at the end of January at the latest. However, as has been made clear elsewhere in the show, that's only the, uh, not the uh, beginning of the end, it's only the end of the beginning, to paraphrase Mr. Churchill, because there will be many, many battles over the terms, the deal that we make uh, with the European Union. And there will be many in the Conservative Party who will try to make this as much like Mrs. May's Brino, Brexit in name only, as they can possibly get away with. So some of us, me included, will be trying to hold Boris Johnson's feet to the fire to make sure that the Brexit deal he finally does will be a real Brexit. Jason, don't be a stranger. That was an excellent call. Now, in role reversal, I am interviewed in normal times five days a week by one of the brightest and one of the best anchors in American television. Her name is Manila Chan of RT America, and now I'm going to interview her. I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to see you again, Manila. Hello, George. Nice to hear from you. It's been a little while. Yeah, I've missed you. I've missed you. Now, whilst, Likewise. I must admit, it is a little bit strange being on this side of the questions. Yes, but I, I'll be as nice to you as you always are to me. <laughs> now, uh, look, uh, while I've been away, Donald Trump has sunk deeper and deeper into trouble, hasn't he? Is this impeachment <laughs> prospect real, do you think? Uh, well, George, personally, I believe that this is Adam Schiff's uh, second bite at the apple. Uh, he seemed to have failed after the Mueller report came with a big nothing burger, as they like to call it. Uh, and I think this is his second go at trying to remove Trump from office, or at least give him this political indictment, which we call the impeachment proceedings. Um, I hate that I have to defend President Trump because I'm personally not a big fan of his. However, what's right is right, right and what's wrong is wrong. And I think this is the Democrats' second go because they are trying to rehash the 2016 elections. And Hillary Clinton is all over the media, smiling ear to ear. So I think it's, I think you, if you ask a lot of people, at least um, outside of the Democratic circles, I think a lot of people would agree with me that this is a, a lot to do about nothing. And it's just a, a media stunt, personally. I think a lot of people would agree. Well, uh, it is uh, the second bite at the apple, isn't it? Because uh, they don't seem to know that not only is Ukraine not in Russia, uh, but Ukraine is probably <laughs> Russia's biggest uh, adversary in the near abroad. Uh, sure. The relations between Russia and Ukraine are very poor. And yet this is being treated as Russia gate too, isn't it? That's right. It, it absolutely is. I think people 
still have a hard time remembering that the Cold War is over and that the USSR is no longer, uh, especially with all this talk of NATO. And I think a lot of people conflate uh, the, the different issues going on between uh, NATO and the Mueller report slash Russia gate to now it's it, it should be really if if the Republicans are listening here, they should really dub this Burisma gate if they really want to brand this uh, for Joe Biden and and swing the pendulum in the other direction. They really ought to remind the American viewer that if Joe Biden were not running for president, would Donald Trump's ask be prohibited? Would that be wrong to find out that there was any American corruption going on with Ukrainian corruption? What is wrong with that apart from Joe Biden running for president? Well, I, I, I can't understand why the Democrats can't see that in any uh, impeachment proceedings, the most likely person to be effectively impeached is Joe Biden. It will kill his presidential run because his family is up to their neck in the corruption and the scandal that is Ukraine Gate. I agree 100%. But somehow Joe Biden and his family are getting a pass. And they're, they're getting a pass at this because the American mainstream media is so overtly uh, Joe Biden friendly and so left leaning that they're willing to skew the facts and, and overlook very glaring, obvious truths about what was happening with Hunter Biden because they want to insulate Joe Biden because he's the media darling and Trump is not. Simple as that. Now, uh, you mentioned NATO earlier. Uh, it was here, of course. The circus yes. came to town. There uh, were precious few elephants, uh, but uh, quite a few clowns. And there was a lot yes. of laughter, and much of it at Donald Trump's uh, expense. And he seemed to leave in a bit of a huff, we call it here, in high, sure. dud high dudgeon. Is that how it looked from over there? Uh, I, I believe so. I think... Um for both, since this is, I mean, I'm going to call it a two-party system because that's really what we have. Anybody outside the Democrats or the Republicans really don't stand any chance, at least not in this political climate. But both parties, I think, can agree that the U.S. looked bad. Donald Trump made the U.S. look like a clown. It showed that the big players in NATO, Germany, France, uh, the Queen Anne who was there, or Princess Anne, rather, who was there, they don't take him seriously. Justin Trudeau's jokes about him, nobody, nobody stood up to defend Donald Trump. I think this showed the, the lack of uh, respect that world leaders have for him. And, and they just kind of politely smile along to his face because guess what? The U.S. contributes something like $3.8 billion into NATO every year. So they smile and, and nod along with him, but behind his back, they clearly don't respect him. Mm. Now, uh, you're unable to uh, show preference, uh, but I can. Uh, I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter myself. How do you see his chance of winning the Democratic Party's nomination? i tell you why I ask. I saw a poll today which shows him on track to win in Iowa and get off yeah. to a really flying start. 
Do you think Bernie Sanders can beat Joe Biden? I think if it were a fair fight, George, Bernie could win. If this was a fair election, it could win. If the DNC didn't have it in for him back in 2016, and this is now carried over now going into 2020, the DNC does not want Bernie Sanders to win. He's a disruptor. He turns, he overturns the apple cart all the time. He's known for doing that in Congress. And the DNC doesn't like him. Joe Biden is not a disruptor. Joe Biden is part of the system. And they like that. The same way Hillary Clinton was just next in queue, if you will. So Joe Biden is now the anointed one. Uh, my prediction, if you ask me, I know you didn't directly ask, but if you ask me, my prediction is that Joe Biden is going to get the nomination because the DNC has made him the anointed one. Well, uh, if you asked me and you didn't directly, but let me answer the question you didn't ask me. If it's Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, I think Trump wins again. But George, George, is there anybody that the Democrats have that can really truly take on Trump? Yeah, well, I think Bernie could. I think he's the only one that can beat Trump. I think I think Bernie had the wind beneath his wings in 2016, and then he was shot out of the sky by the DNC and Hillary Clinton. Unfortunately, the I think the the feeling on the ground here is. Bernie's wings have been clipped since 2016. He has, there's a, there's a new Democratic Party here, George. The Democrats have swung. Granted, I get that, that, that Bernie is, is left, but the people here have swung far left into the AOC wing of the party. And even Bernie hasn't gone that far, but he's kind of been corralled into that corner. I think a lot of people are now fractioned because of that. And, and I don't think he has quite the same support that he does or he had that he enjoyed in 2016 among Democrats. And remember, none of the polls saw President Trump happening. That was an impossibility. All the polls back then showed Hillary Clinton was the projected not only nominee, but the projected winner. So I think a lot of America does not trust any poll any longer. And I don't think you should trust the polls now. I think when you talk to a lot of, um, a lot of, I would say Gen X and, and even older millennial voters, people that are more or less in my age group, a lot of them are fractioned. Bernie doesn't have the same support that he had in 2016. It's quite unfortunate, uh, but I think a lot of people are looking to find somebody to bring America back to normalcy, if you will. And I think a lot of people, view Joe Biden as that normal place. However, the wild card I'll give to Pete Buttigieg because he is actually really gaining a lot of momentum. Nobody saw him coming, uh, but I, I still do believe that the DNC pulls the strings here. And when they pull those strings, I think it's going to reveal Joe Biden as the nominee. So uh, Bloomberg's billions won't change the, uh, the dynamic at all? I don't think so. I think he's a little bit of a disruption. Um, I think he'll make for some good TV. There'll be, you know, it's the, the battle of the New York billionaires. But I don't think that is what America wants or America needs. It doesn't matter if you're a, a billionaire on the left or a billionaire on the right. 
what it boils down to is those two are two New York billionaires, and I don't think America has the appetite to see two New Yorkers battle it out. Trump is a, is a character. Michael Bloomberg is a nanny state mayor. He wants to control your sodas. He wants to control how often you, you go to the gym and, and you know, how, how large a pizza can be. Nobody wants that in the U.S. He's, he's not going to get enough support uh, in the middle of the country. That is where you win elections. Michael Bloomberg, with his billions of dollars, paying for his billions in television and radio and Internet commercials, I, I don't think he's going to be able to swing the middle of this country the way President Trump did, unfortunately. Manila, I can't tell you what a delight it is to talk to you again. I look forward Likewise. to seeing you again soon. And the very best. Likewise. Manila presents... I wish you uh, the best this coming week, George. How exciting. I hope so. God willing, we'll all be back together again soon. Manila Chan, presenter of In Question on RT America, on which in ordinary times I'm a regular daily guest. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. It's time for the news with Jamie Lowe. Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. This is Dominic Carter, a political reporter in New York for Verizon Files TV News. This is Dr. Bill Honigman, progressive Democrats of America, PDAmerica.org. Hey, everybody, my name is Tim Black of the Tim Black Show. This is Tom Luongo of Gold Coast and Guns. Hello, this is Benny Johnson. Hi, this is Juanita Broderick, author of You'd Better Put Some Ice on That. This is Jamal Thomas from the Progressive Soapbox. Hey, this is Raheem from D.C. This is Rachel Blevins, a correspondent with RT America, and you're listening to Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan. When I'm waking up in the morning, I'm looking for what's on the queue for today. I tune to Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan. The wokest radio show for your wokest AM. These guys are the best in the business and experts when it comes to policy. They're bringing you the top headlines with an angle that you won't see in the mainstream media. Fault Lines is the greatest show on the radio. I enjoy immensely talking with Lee and Garland. They always treat me uh, from either side with due respect, and it's a wonderful conversation. The best morning news show in America. Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan. Lee and Garland speak truth to power from the depths of the swamp itself, right here on Radio Sputnik. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Radio Sputnik News. A large fire has swept through a bag factory in the Indian capital of Delhi, killing 43 workers, officials say. More than 60 people have been rescued and firefighters had to carry out victims on their shoulders one by one. The blaze broke out early on Sunday morning, starting on the lower stories first before spreading rapidly to the third floor where at least 100 workers were sleeping. Prime Minister Narendra Modi called the fire horrific and sent his condolences. 
Tens of thousands of protesters have marched through the streets of Hong Kong in the largest anti-government rally in months. For the first time since August, police allowed a rally by the pro-democracy group Civil Human Rights Front. Organizers said that an estimated 800,000 took part, while police put the number at just over 180,000. Police also said that 11 people were arrested in raids ahead of the rally and that a handgun was seized. The protest started in June over a controversial extradition bill and have now evolved into broader anti-government demonstrations. In a statement on Saturday, the government called for calm and said that it had learned its lesson and will humbly listen to and accept criticism. And in the countdown to the British general election, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has claimed that a leaked Treasury document about checks on the Northern Ireland border is wrong. Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn obtained the document, claiming that it proves there will be customs checks between Great Britain and Northern Ireland after Brexit. Johnson has claimed that the only checks would be on British exports to the Republic of Ireland going via Northern Ireland. However, this is contradicted not just by Labour, but by political and economic analysts who maintain that because of EU law, products would have to be checked even if they were not going to the Republic of Ireland. Next, cold and afraid, a five-year-old child carried her younger sibling half a mile to safety in freezing temperatures following a blackout. The five-year-old and 18-month-old arrived at the neighbor's home, suffering from injuries relating to cold weather. The five-year-old became scared when the power went out and carried the 18-month-old approximately half a mile to the neighbor's home. A 37-year-old woman has been arrested on suspicion of endangering the welfare of a child. And finally, it sold for £120,000, that's just over £91,000, last week. But the artwork of a banana duct taped to a wall has now been scoffed. The performance artist David Detuna posted videos online showing himself peeling the fruit from the wall and consuming it in front of a crowd at an art exhibition in Miami. He described eating the banana as an art performance and said that the installation by Italian artist Maurizio Catalan was very delicious. Fortunately for the buyer, the work was apparently sold with a certificate of authenticity with the owners allowed to replace the fruit as and when it is needed. That's Sputnik News, I'm Jamie Lowe. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway, only on Sputnik Radio. That simply must be a publicity stunt, the banana for 125,000. Apart from anything else, Adam, what happens when the banana rots? Well, they'll have to spend 225,000. <laughs> buy it again? Or they could just go down, go down to the Aldi or the Asda or the Lidl and yeah. get it for a, less yeah. than a pound. Well, less. Uh, now, I'm joined, as you can see, uh, by Adam Gary. Hashtag Ask Adam. People already asking in their droves. <laughs> Let me uh, run through uh, some of them. Uh, with regards to the United Nations Climate Conference in Spain, COP25, I wonder if you can make Adam address the issue of carbon quota or carbon credit. As the cleverest man in England, he should be the right man to talk about this with authority because it doesn't make much sense, at least not to me. Nor me, actually. <laughs> this, I don't think it's supposed to make sense. This is from Sindra Hepso in Norway. Mm. Hope you can make Adam address this. 
Let yes. me make you. Go on. Oh, I feel the force of nature coming down <laughs> upon me, like hopefully some on certain green benches will in a week. Not that I'm going to mention that. Well, in general, whenever someone hears the word quotas, run as far as you can in the other direction. This is true whether it's trade quotas, which fit under this surreptitious thing they call non-tariff trade barriers, which is a tariff through the back door or a stealth tariff, to use language borrowed from the nemeses of Gordon Brown. I don't like quotas when you have all women shortlists, all men with one arm long lists, all dwarf shortlists. Uh, I, I think that a position should be gained because of merit in the business world and in general, uh, with maybe the exception of the clerical world and the House of Lords before Tony Blair stuffed booze merchants and his flatmates and other people in that once great legal and legislative chamber. Now, as for this carbon quota stuff, it's a lot of rubbish, and I'm actually going to say something nice about Mr. Corbyn, which people probably weren't expecting, but of course, this is Piers Corbyn, the brother of, <laughs> of the leader of the Labour Party. He makes a point, and he's a scientist, that carbon, he calls it the gas of life, I believe he calls it, because it's good for the trees. They, with, through the photosynthetic process, they absorb it, and it, it's food. Carbon is plant food. And so the idea that we, that, that we need to limit carbon is itself a fallacy. And another point that uh, my favorite Mr. Corbyn makes is that an increase of carbon in the atmosphere isn't the cause of changing temperatures, but it's the result of naturally occurring temperature changes. So the idea that one can artificially enforce a quota of how much a natural substance is protruded and exhausted um, into the atmosphere is simply ludicrous. These people are attempting to play God, and when those have given up on faith and think that they are gods on earth, they quite frequently start to typecast themselves in that way. There you go, Sindra. You thought you might have stumped them, but you didn't. Uh, Andy Omega asks, what's your verdict on Farage modifying the Brexit party to the Reform Party? Mm. Will it carry momentum and political influence? Well, I've been vindicated. I said that Farage is something of an 18th century liberal, and now he's sort of transitioning, as everyone does these days, into a sort of Gladstonian figure. Now, Farage and Gladstone have some similarities. They both started out life in the Tory party, though everyone tends to forget that because they were much more famous outside of the Tories than in. And the other thing that's similar is they both went to the radical liberal, mind you, not the socialist, but the radical liberal left the older they got. Always believing in free market economics. And so these are some interesting parallels between the two of them. So frankly, if a Gladstonian party led by Farage were to replace the Joe Swinson party, which is neither Lloyd George Asquith or Gladstone in its... Neither liberal nor democratic. Quite. It's a bit like the Holy Roman Empire of parties, and I think it may suffer a similar fate to the ballot box. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm quite the opposite of a Gladstonian liberal, but if it does what it says on the tin, and if he can admit that it's a Gladstonian liberal party, sure, why not go and replace the liberal Democrats? You'll have as much, if not slightly more success. I should say Adam has absolutely no idea that, uh, of the questions that I'm posing to him. Here's another one. Evening, gentlemen. When, with the general election night, thus likely a Labour defeat too, do you believe 
it's the end of the road for Project Corbyn. If so, who do you envisage wrestling control of the Labour Party long term? I think it's going to be less of a wrestling match than sort of someone crawling out of the desert on all hands and knees only to be told that the water fountain has run dry, possibly because of too little carbon in the, in the atmosphere. Um, I think that there is going to be, uh, assuming that Johnson's Tories win, which is a fair assumption, as Sir John was saying earlier, I agree with much of that, um, I think that there's going to be a segment in the Labour true believers that will want Corbyn to continue. And there'll be, there'll be a minority numerically, but they'll be very vociferous in their chants and in their expressions of why Corbyn should stay on. Ultimately, though, I don't think he will. Uh, John McDonnell, who's already planning to be sort of the Nostradamus of the uh, new Labour Party, uh, combined with a kind of Cardinal Richelieu. Uh, he's already said that he wants a woman leader, which is a quota, <laughs> of course, of sorts, uh, of big sorts. And so that sort of narrows it down. It means that MacDonald is ruling himself out, but he's certainly going to be the power behind the throne. I think he's probably too nasty of a character, uh, far from being the magic grandpa, as the supporters of Corbyn call him. Uh, MacDonald is sort of like a nasty... He's sort of like the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz. Uh, you've got Wicked Witches of the North London, which is Emily Thornbury. Um, you could do a whole panto, but he can't be the leader. So it's going to be a woman... Um, and just to, just to make things ever more horrifying, we were supposed to Brexit on Halloween, that didn't work, but to keep that spirit up, some say, and I don't think she'll get through, that Jess Phillips, the woman with the endless mouth, might... Uh, Jess Phillips will definitely be a candidate. Yes, I mean, the Socrates... She'll be on the ballot. Pit. The Socrates Impersonation Festival of Central Birmingham wouldn't be the same if she had to resign her role to lead the Labour Party, but <laughs> I don't think she'll get in, even though she has the only qualification that John McDonnell cares for, being born without male genitalia. Liam Ryan says, uh, ask Adam... How's your infatuated support for imperialist pawn Duterte holding out? Uh, far from being an imperialist pawn, he's probably the most sovereignty-minded and anti-imperialist president that the Philippines has ever had in its modern history. I would actually compare him to uh, Jose uh, Rizal, one of the national sort of founding fathers of the original anti-colonial struggle in the Philippines. So there's really no answer to the question since it's a preposterous presumption. Duterte is hated precisely because he pursues a neutral foreign policy that places prosperity for his people who are far more impoverished than they should be over entangling alignments. alignments. Now, our poll number two of the evening, who would Boris Johnson fear most in a face-to-face? -face? A, Andrew Neil, B, George Galloway, <laughs> C, Duncan Ferguson. <laughs> for Is Joe Swinson not on the list? For me, it would be... For me, it would be Duncan Ferguson. Uh, I think anyone would fear to face him. Uh, well, some, I don't know what kind of voice just came to me there, but somebody in here doesn't know who Duncan Ferguson is. The whole gallery doesn't know who Duncan Ferguson is. Duncan Ferguson is one of the most magnificent athletes, footballers ever to play on this island. 
He went from my hometown of Dundee United to Glasgow Rangers. Hard luck, lads, in the cup final today. And uh, then he went uh, south to Everton and became a club legend. And now he's the interim manager. And they beat Chelsea 3-1 on Saturday, an occasion marked by Big Duncan, as he's known, picking up the ball boys and literally twirling them round his head. His house was burgled by two idiots who imagined that they could take on Duncan Ferguson and he hospitalised both of them. Well done. And then another two idiots tried to do exactly the same thing and he hospitalised both of those. Doubly well done. He has four convictions for <laughs> punching people. Uh, he's a man of conviction. So that's who Duncan <laughs> We Ferguson need conviction is. politicians. A conviction football <laughs> manager. Uh, anyway, you can vote on my uh, Twitter. Andrew Neil, George Galloway or Duncan Ferguson. Uh, let's take a call from Austria. Yvonne in Austria. Welcome, Yvonne. Hello, George. How are you? It's an honour to speak to you. Thank you very much for taking my call. No, thank you. Thank you very much. We don't get many calls from Austria. Thank you. No, I'm following you all the way from Austria since your beautiful speech outside Belmarsh Prison, actually, for June. And I before that, but, yeah, that was really amazing, the speech. Wonderful. But, thank you. Uh, I, I have to say, I'm a bit, I, I, I like it. You know, you talk about the man of conviction, that's you, I think, and um, talk about Tony Benn a lot. I, I actually managed to see him speak in England. Ah. Um, yeah, he was the greatest of them all. Yeah, so I'm a bit of a stalker, so to speak, so I follow you around. <laughs> well, um, very, very welcome. I watched you on Friday night at um, the West Bromwich East uh, hosting. At the, uh, at the Working Men's Club, yeah, we had a really good audience. Actually, the, yeah. biggest, the biggest meeting we've had was absolutely packed. And people can still lovely. see it on YouTube, yeah. It was really lovely. Yeah. Thank you. And, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of things, actually. I could chat to for ages. Um, but anyway, the one thing that, that caught my ears at the end of, of the hustings, is that a hustings, yeah? Yeah. It, um, well, it was, was a one-man hustings. The, opponent, the opponents didn't turn up. Ah, oh, that's the kebab man, oh? Sorry, I don't know if that's Yeah, well, we're not going to talk about the uh, actual contest, but, oh, but yeah, thanks. But, yeah, yeah the, the thing I wanted to ask you was, at the very end, you said something about announcing on Saturday that you were going to form a political party. Uh, yes, yes. Well, let me, let me, let me tell you uh, that we did found the Workers' Party of Britain on Saturday afternoon. Uh, in the Kendrick building in West Bromwich, in the West Midlands. And I think uh, when you see the pictures and the video next weekend, right after the election, uh, you'll be very pleased indeed by the quality, the quantity, and the surroundings for that matter uh, for the party. So it was formed on Saturday, and it will be launched, it will go live, as it were, this coming Saturday. Workers' Party of Britain. You can look at it as a, a kind of Brexit Labour Party, a socialist party that believes in Brexit. And we'll be trying to build support amongst those sections of the British working class that have fallen out of love with the Labour Party. Last word to you, Yvonne. 
Oh, well, I'm just, you know, I'm always I'm getting tears in my eyes somehow listening to you. And it's kind of, I mean, I do think somebody once tweeted that out on Twitter that uh, the American who, like, is in charge of America, it's not only important for America, it's important for the whole world. And uh, that's another reason why I follow politics very closely. And, um, yeah, hearing that you're going to do that, I think that's what Britain needs, really. It needs a new party. It needs honesty. I mean, the world needs honesty, doesn't it? God bless you, Yvonne. What are you doing in Austria, incidentally? Are you working there? Well, I'm a kinder. Uh, I work with children, yeah. I, I do um, art and craft with children, yeah. And you're from the, you're from, from the Emerald Isle, I can detect. <laughs> Dublin, yeah. <laughs> How wonderful. A lovely Dublin accent. Thank you very much for all your kind words and thoughts. Let's go to Roy in Brentwood. Go ahead, Roy. Oh, hello. Hello there. Nice to hear from you. Um, and you, lovely. Thank you. I, 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 I admire you very much for your honesty and integrity. I've followed you. you for years. Thank you, Roy. Uh, I, just, I, just, I just asked you a lot to ask this question. When they refurnished the banks um, in 2002-8 after the subprimer, uh, 455 million, billion, sorry. Billion, yeah. Big, big yeah, billion. B. <laughs> yeah. Capital B. It, yeah, capital B, billion, yeah. Wouldn't it have been better to refinance the public services and put the money into the economy rather than give it to the banks who paid themselves bonuses after us for their incompetence? We would have actually been better taking... Uh, all those hundreds of billions into a helicopter and scattering them randomly across the land because at least then uh, that money would have been spent, would have circulated, kick-started yeah. and circulated yeah. in the economy uh, rather than disappearing into the black hole of the uh, commercial bank vaults, uh, thus uh, falling foul of all moral hazard of rewarding failure in private enterprise uh, with sub subvention uh, from public funds. The very opposite, Adam, of what capitalism is supposed to stand for. Well, quite right. It's not capitalism at all. It's a kind of, it's, it's, it's a banker's socialism. And, and it's appalling as someone who's a libertarian free marketeer, with a few exceptions. I'm not a doctrinaire in any field, but I'm generally an economic libertarian. It was absolutely perverse what happened. When the shop round the corner folds, you don't get a government subsidized bailout. When someone defaults on their debt, they don't get a government subsidized bailout. So why should these banks which operated under the worst practices took a system that was already appalling called fractional reserve banking and they just multiplied it to such grotesque levels of sub-economic vulgarity. If anyone deserved to fall and fall badly, it was these people. It's the Jimmy Cliff theory of capitalism. The bigger they are, the harder they fall, but not when you have this uh, banker's socialism. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were too big to fail. Bankers too big to jail. Well, Jimmy, the Jimmy Cliff theory of economics, which is a pure free market model, would disagree with that. But Gordon Brown, who then went in preposterously said that he saved the world, uh, felt otherwise. But no, these and banks... the former Trotsky, Alastair Darling. <laughs> Quite right. When I first encountered at Waverley Station, pressing Trotskyite tracts on bewildered railwomen. 
Well, it's not that much of a stretch because Trotskyites are in love with power. They hate individual freedom. They hate working class people speaking for themselves. They hate tradition. They hate just about everything I like. Uh, but they, they like the idea of control. And what better control than to fuse a supposedly priving banking industry with the government? It's Trotskyism with, to borrow a phrase from Vince Cable, with a pinstripe veneer. Well, last word to you, Roy. Yeah, well, I agree entirely with you. The fact is they blame the Tories for this, but the fact remains it was Gordon Brown that, that, that basically lent this money to the bankers for their incompetence. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't lend he it. Gave he, it. He, he gave it gratis. He just gave it. And, not, and they didn't even take seats uh, on the board. I recall vividly Alistair Darling saying in the House that I'm, I've never been a believer in the government having a chair at the boardroom table of private banks and I rose to say, oh yes you were, <laughs> I first met you pressing Trotsky tracts on bewildered railwaymen uh, in uh, Waverley Station. Roy, thanks uh, very much for that. Let's take a quick break. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Tune in every Thursday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker for the regular segment called Veterans for Peace, where we focus on the contemporary issues of war and peace that affect veterans, their families, the country, and the world as a whole. Veterans for Peace President Jerry Condon joins the show every Thursday. Hear about this and more every Thursday right here on Radio Sputnik. We are above all the latest developments, and we don't take any sides. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. The mother of all talk shows. With George Galloway, the world is our classroom, and you're welcome to sit in and join the seminar. Who would Boris Johnson fear most in a face-to-face? -face? A. Andrew Neil, B. George Galloway, C. Duncan Ferguson. You can vote on my uh, Twitter feed. Art Speak Central says Libya today is a broken country due to America and its grubby allies. And Jonathan Hans says the Western imperialist forces were determined to destroy Libya. And Yinka says Gaddafi was loved across Africa. His death set back the continent, but at least it has achieved one thing, waking up a sleeping mass to the cold reality that crooks intend to rape the land. Uh, here's one from Angela in Newport. What do you think's happened to the man in the double-breasted pajamas, namely Jacob Rees-Mogg? He's obviously gone into hiding. He has, isn't he? Well, he's campaigning in his constituency and posting some rather amusing things on Twitter, but always of a very innocuous and anodyne nature. Uh, but essentially, some of the stage managers of the Tory party that haven't yet been uh, shown the exit that came in during that ghastly era of Cameron, they haven't, they're trying to stage manage this campaign, which is one of the worst campaigns there's ever been. It's only saving grace that the Labour campaign has been even worse, which is to say nothing of the Lib Dem campaign, which is like watching a bus go over a cliff backwards, only to see that the sea's been drained because of global warming. With Joe Swinson. 
Johnson on the side of the bus. With, you know, with mouth wide open, like a shock ready to attack. Yeah, um, they've, the, the Tory high command, you know, the, the boring men in grey suits at Tory HQ, have kept him out of the limelight because of a frankly misunderstood statement that he made about the Grenfell tragedy on, uh, on another radio show. And I think it's rather stupid because he's one of the most articulate and more amusing figures they've got. And by God, could they could use a dose of interesting and articulate in this campaign. Do you think he's out of favour uh, if the Tories get back? Will he be dropped or is he just being parked for the duration? I think he's just being parked for the duration because his, his position uh, on the front bench is one that isn't so much concerned with policy or interacting with the public. He's the leader of the House of Commons. So this is about constitutional law and theory. It's about procedural issues. It's, not, it's about as far from a populistic kind of position as one could get. So if there's anywhere that these sort of sweaty men in grey suits would feel comfortable with him being, it would be would in be that there, position. Yeah. Let's hear from Ian in Hounslow in London. Ian, go ahead. Hello, George. Nice to hear uh, from you again. Yes, uh, it's good to speak to you. I just want to pick up about Brexit uh, and the Remainers' virtue signalling uh, and saying all Brexiteers are these uh, sort of um, troglodytes, knuckle-dragging white racists. Now, there is a stream on YouTube called Navarra Media and a young chap called David Waring blaming Brexit and Brexiteers for the news being preoccupied with Brexit to the exclusion of all other matters, including the tragedy of Yemen. Now, you pointed out the disgraceful behaviour of the nearly 90 MPs on Labour who were absent on the early day motion to put forward an arms embargo on Saudi Arabia over Yemen. Now, those 80-odd... 90 MPs, two-thirds of them are Remainers, and a third of them are Labour Friends of Israel. Almost all of them voted for the war in Iraq, and almost all of them voted against the investigation of the war in Iraq. I've contacted David via YouTube, and he hasn't had the decency to reply. Well, I have nothing to do with uh, Novara Media, which seems to me to typify precisely the uh, culture war issues that I was talking about earlier uh, in the evening. So uh, I'm not able to guide you on how to get any redress uh, from them. Um, but the uh, news is worse than you think. It wasn't 80 or 90, it was well over 100 Labour MPs. And it wasn't an early day motion, which is a meaningless declaration on a piece of paper. It was uh, an attempt to legislate on the floor of the House, introduced by Jeremy Corbyn to uh, suspend all British arms exports to Saudi Arabia until an investigation had taken place as to their illegal use in the slaughter of civilians in Yemen. Uh, it was a three-line whip. And more than well over 100 Labour MPs voted against it or abstained broke the three-line whip that Mr. Corbyn had maintained. Now, I argued then directly to him that this was the moment to go for the Blairites, to take the whip away from them, to suspend them, to make it impossible for them to be Labour MPs again, because 
What could be better territory for a Jeremy Corbyn figure than a group of MPs actively supporting the most reactionary, vicious, vile, head-chopping, crucifying, torturing, obscurantist regime on the earth, namely Saudi Arabia. I would love to fight enemies on that terrain. We had gay labor MPs lining up with Saudi Arabia, where they throw gay people off the top of buildings. We had women labor MPs standing up for Saudi Arabia despite the imprisonment from dawn to dusk, from daughterhood to adult and motherhood of women citizens of Saudi Arabia being effectively incarcerated in their own homes, in their own families, and to their male relatives. What better territory would there have been for Jeremy Corbyn to confront and defeat the Blairites than that? If he had done so, then more than 100 of these Blairites would not now be running as Labour MPs in the current general election. Just think about that. Thanks, Ian. Let's hear from Adrian in Clapham. Go ahead, Adrian. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, sorry, good evening, uh, George. Mm -hmm. How's it going? Yeah, good. Nice to hear from you, Adrian. You too, buddy. Um, literally, uh, George, I'm just calling in. Uh, it's election week. So I just wanted to know, in particular, what constituencies in the country do you believe, um, more specifically, um, that Labour wouldn't grasp it? Because here in South London, uh, every, everybody's quite, you know, they're quite optimistic with it. They believe, not so London people only listen to London people. Oh, so no, London, uh, like, Labour will do very well in London. Very well. Especially in London, where I am. But I know North of England, because I went to university out of London, so I know it's quite different and the mentality is quite different compared to us yeah. down here. Yeah. Uh, so, so where in particular do you reckon that well, they will uh, leave? Uh, I don't want to name the constituencies. That would be invidious. Uh, because no one's here to answer me and argue the point. Yeah, I'm going to give you the areas. I'm going to give you the areas. Right across the West Midlands, the East, East Midlands, the Northwest, the Northeast, uh, North East Wales and South Wales, Labour will lose seats going down like dominoes. That's my prediction. But then the, the Brexit Party, um, they've, uh, they've lost um, four, four conservative, um, conservative MP, sorry, four MPs that have gone to back to No MPs, no, members of the European Parliament who were elected as Brexit Party MEPs uh, but are not resigning their seats now that they've left the Brexit Party, which seems would to be exactly... Would, would that affect Nigel Farage? No, I don't think it'll make any difference. I don't, I th I'm sorry to tell you, it's not, it won't be the Brexit party that is taking these seats from Labour. It will be the Conservatives. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> All right, see if, I'm, see if I'm right and see if I'm wrong. Come back next week. Thanks for that, mm -hmm. Adrian. Jennifer in Clitheroe. Go ahead, Jennifer. Oh, hello, George. Um, now then, I, I don't want your wife, Gayatri, to take this the wrong way, but me and my friend adore you. Thank you very much. 
<laughs> anyway, George, um, you were talking about... I've also been watching you uh, in uh, West Brom oh, yeah. uh, at your meetings uh, and listening uh, to what you've been saying. And I know that you mentioned about a new party, uh, and um, uh, it sounds... A, a marvelous idea, but it 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 uh, it reminded me uh, of many years ago uh, when Arthur Scargill yeah. uh, had formed the uh, Socialist Labour Party, and of course you'll remember this very well. Uh, it was all in in after the aftermath of uh, the the dreadful miners' strike and Tony Blair and all the damage that had been done uh, to the Labour movement. Uh, but uh, and actually, I, I, I remember I, I'd actually joined uh, the Socialist Labour Party then uh, at, at, at the very early stages, but it never really uh, got off the ground, George. And so I, I wondered what... Uh, uh, you, you thought of, of, of this now. It's a very, very in, in good... Yeah, it's a very good uh, question, uh, Jennifer. The lateness of the hour doesn't allow me to do it justice entirely. I would say in short uh, that uh, Arthur, Arthur's uh, idea was uh, at a time that hadn't come. Uh, it was premature. Uh, it was exactly at the rise of new Labour and the leadership of Tony Blair which captivated uh, large sections of the party's membership and, for a time, large sections of the electorate. The writing was on the wall, uh, but the working class couldn't see it yet. After now 25 years or more, I think that the writing is still there and more and more people can see it, that the Labour Party is now, whatever you think of it now, it is about to move decisively to the right. That's the only way it can react to an anticipated defeat of Jeremy Corbyn. And moreover, that's the only way it will react. They will not elect, indeed, anyone to the left of Jeremy Corbyn couldn't even get on the ballot paper to be a candidate, to be the leader of the Labour Party. So the spread of leadership candidates will be from, roughly speaking, Angela Rayner uh, to Keir Starmer and Emily Thornberry. It will be someone on that spectrum that will be the leader. Uh, then they'll start to blame Corbyn uh, for his international positions, his opposition uh, to war and uh, nuclear weapons and so on. And in other words, Corbyn will be scapegoated uh, for any defeat that occurs on Thursday. So the Labour Party will be moving right and will be moving in an increasingly anti-Brexit direction. So we intend to stand on socialist politics and embracing Brexit and its opportunities that it affords us. Uh, Jennifer, forgive me, I can't come back to you for more than a minute, but please give me your last word. Um, well, yeah, uh, it, 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 uh, the 
wonderful, George. Uh, I wish you every luck uh, with it. I, I truly hope that, uh, uh, that, that it's successful and that this is the historical time for it and that Arthur Scargill just was wrong at that it was it was a matter it was a matter of uh, of timing now arthur kept the name labor he's the only person in the country other than labor that's allowed to use it but i'm sorry to tell you that's not the asset uh, that it once was how's the poll doing andrew neil 35% down one george galloway 45% up one duncan ferguson a wise 20% of you uh, now, uh, you can still vote until 10 o'clock on my uh, Twitter feed uh, on that. Uh, G.J. Woods, if Jeremy Corbyn was in complete control of the Labour Party's direction, acting out his views on the EU that he had for decades when he sat next to George, standing for the working class along with socialist policies, would you support him or still back Boris? Hashtag ask Adam. It's one for you, Adam. Whoever want, I would back whoever had the harder Brexit and a possibility of winning. And in 2017, even though I disagreed with Corbyn's economic policies, I disagreed with the way in which he phrased a lot of his foreign policies. I'm anti-war, but for very different reasons. Um, I won't go into the other multiple disagreements, but it kind of sort of seemed in 2017 that May, who is a dyed-in-the-wool Remainer, was perhaps not as much of a conviction Brexiteer as Corbyn. It sort of seemed in 2017 as though Corbyn could have broken out of the box and said, voila, happy birthday, sorry about the lack of clothes. By the way, I'm a Brexiteer and there's nothing that the Thornbreeze and the rest of them could do about it. That Jeremy Corbyn, who was also, weirdly, the one who performed in front of young and misguided Romaniacs at rock festivals and who, to, to great applause, that Corbyn is no more. And the Corbyn that for decades spoke out quite correctly about how bad the EU was, that Corbyn is also no more. So in a Brexit election, I favour whoever wants the hardest Brexit who can actually win, which discounts uh, some of the smaller parties, I have to say. Robert Hickey says Gaddafi was okay, a bit strange, but better than a lot of them. I think that sums up Gaddafi quite well, don't you? It, it, it's it, it's uh, neither the mo most generous nor is it the most critical view, so I'll, I'll go with that, I suppose. <laughs> uh, Tony says, once Colonel Gaddafi decided to move away from the US dollar, the Americans had to uh, remove him. He uh, went to gold. He, he went, went to gold. To gold. Yeah. That was yeah. the... Well, you favour uh, that, don't you? I certainly do. I, I certainly do, uh, but luckily I haven't yet been massacred or killed over it the way he was. Uh, the masses says, can a country ever be described as free or democratic when it is in enforced debt to the IMF? Well, I don't think that debt of any kind is compatible with any sort of freedom because once the government gets into debt, you're essentially living in a slave economy which will quickly become violent. Let it not be said that the Second World War was caused by anything other than a German economic policy which was not so different than what the Federal Reserve and other central banks are doing by printing money and issuing bonds that can't realistically be redeemed. 
redeemed other than through the issuing of more bonds and more printed money. In Germany, they called them MIFO bills, which were essentially, it was a, a promissory note uh, that was given where they, were, they sold the MIFO bills to get the cash that they needed for all their maddening deficit spending, but they knew they couldn't ever pay this back. And so what did they do? They invaded countries that had a gold, st that, that had stocks of gold, and because they needed money. They had given away these fake notes, printing fake monopoly money, and they needed to invade. Then they had a deal with the Soviet Union, where for the raw materials that the Soviet Union had in abundance, they'd get the finished goods that the Germans made at a very high level, and when that went awry, they invaded the Soviet Union, which had very valuable commodities like gold, like oil, like rubber, uh, like copper, like uh, timber. And so if uh, the Second World War could be caused by debt, the Third World War will almost certainly be caused by debt. Wow, powerful stuff. Let's take a quick and our final break of the evening. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Tune in every Thursday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker for the regular segment called Veterans for Peace, where we focus on the contemporary issues of war and peace that affect veterans, their families, the country, and the world as a whole. Veterans for Peace President Jerry Condon joins the show every Thursday. Hear about this and more every Thursday right here on Radio Sputnik. We are above all the latest developments, and we don't take any sides. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. The mother of all talk shows. With George Galloway, the world is our classroom, and you're welcome to sit in and join the seminar. Let's get through as many calls as we can in the time remaining. Kenny in Falkirk is on the line. Kenny, welcome. Hello, George. How are you doing? I'm good, especially after the cup final today, but you'll not want to talk well, about well, that. Well, 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 <laughs> we, we, we shan't do that, shall we? <laughs> no. But, I, listen, I, I want to ask you that, but firstly, I want to ask you, why don't you come up here and, and, and sit in the, in the Scottish Parliament? I thought you liked me, Kenny. Would you, would you, really, <laughs> would you really inflict that on me? I, I would love to see you in the Scottish Parliament... Yeah. The, Destroying Nicholas Sturgeon's arguments. Well, I'm ready to do that. I'm in East Kilbride. I'm in East Kilbride in uh, January uh, at the East Kilbride Village Theatre. Come down. Uh, you're not that far away. Uh, and uh, no. see me there. Uh, and our new uh, party may well stand in the Scottish Parliament elections, but not me, uh, because uh, I'd, I'd be... I'd be a fish out of water in that uh, in that wee parliament. I must tell you, if you yeah, love yeah. if you love me if you love me, don't force me. <laughs> they, 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 they have, well, I, I, I unfortunately have a prediction that the Tories may well succeed with a fairly, fairly majority. The SNP may achieve forty, but that won't be enough for for Sturgeon to declare a mandate. Well, if she goes for another referendum, I'll be in Scotland for the duration. Uh, to fight as I fought in 2016, or 2014 Correct. rather, uh, with, to, some effect, to some effect, uh, I'll be just saying no all over again, all over Scotland. Well, I, I heard you saying just saying no in Falkirk in 2015, and it okay. was tremendous. Thanks, thanks. 
Now tell me, how do you see the Scottish end of this general election going? Uh, I think I think the SNP will will increase, but they'll they'll lose big hitters. I think Blackford's gone. I think Cherry's gone. I think Gesson's gone. Interesting. Gone to the Tories. The Tories are rising. They're in second yes. place and rising. Labour is in Tories. third place and falling. Yes, the Conservative and Union Party will increase, particularly where Brexit, Brexit Party are going nowhere, but we, we, we shall see. Indeed. Kenny, thanks very much for the call, my friend. See you on East Kilbride on, I think it's the 18th. Uh, of uh, January, if someone can just check that date for me. Ross is in Liverpool. Ross, welcome to the show. Hello, George. You all right? How's it going? I'm, I'm doing fine. So is the football in Liverpool, both of you. Well done. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, I was wondering what your thoughts are, thoughts are on ISIS prior to turning to the UK. Uh, you mean these ISIS uh, prisoners that yeah. are being held in Syria? Well, yeah. I, I think they should be handed to the legitimate government of Syria and they should be executed by firing squad for having invading, invaded Syria and uh, uh, caused the deaths of literally hundreds of thousands of people, many of whom met their end in the most sickening, revolting, inhuman way uh, that it's possible for anyone to lose their life. So the last thing I want is these people coming back here, getting legal aid at your expense and my expense to put up a fancy defense and then be held in prison only to be released halfway through and end up on London Bridge murdering somebody else? What do you think? Um, I don't really agree with that. I don't think it's very humane. And I know that these people have probably been brainwashed, but ultimately... If we're just executing them, surely that's just taking us down to a level that we shouldn't be down yeah, to. Well, of course, I hear the uh, argument and I uh, hear the brainwashed argument. But my main concern is this, that these people cut no more throats, decapitate no more people, kill no more innocents, no more priests, no more bishops, no more clerics, destroy no more of the great heritage, either of Syria or here in our own country. I'm not prepared to take the risk no. uh, for the sake of, of liberalism. No. Uh, we're just going to have to agree to differ uh, on that, Ross, uh, because I need to press on to Dave in Warsaw. Go ahead, Dave. Hey, George, how are you? I'm good. Nice to hear from you. Go on. <laughs> yes, uh, all right. Uh, before I get into my main call, which is impeachment, I just wanted to clarify your guest from before, Manila, about Bernie Sanders and his support. Yeah, and uh, Manila, Manila seemed to think that Bernie was uh, something of a shot bolt or a busted flush. Yeah, that's not true. He just passed four million uh, donations within the last couple of weeks, and AOC actually endorsed him along with Ilhan Omar. So yeah, but it, it was it was ever. it was Manila's point that that's bad news, not good news. That, well, uh, that yeah. AOC and her ilk, identity politicians, are precisely what Bernie doesn't need. Well, I, I would tend to disagree with that point, but okay, that's okay. Go on. <laughs> 
but uh, the main reason I called was that this whole impeachment thing is a distraction. Uh, the reason why I say that is while the Democrats are, are doing their dog and pony show, the things that you don't hear about is that the Democrats actually in the House just passed the Patriot Act. They extended it. And not only that, overdoses and suicides overtook car uh, overtook car accidents as the leading cause of death. Mm. Trump is now cutting 700 people from food stamps, and they're thinking about moving 14,000 more troops back into the Middle East. He's denied that, of course. Right. He's denied it, sure, but <laughs> these are the things that we've uh, you know you don't hear about. Mm. No, I, hear about, about I hear about them all. Dave, uh, points very well made. Thank you very much indeed. I hope you're right about Bernie Sanders. But we've got to clear the decks because there's a legend on the line, Norma, in Bristol. Norma, welcome. Hello, George. Um, I'm trying to look on the bright side because um, of the maybe the result of the election. Okay. There's <laughs> three comments, actually. Um, the Musa Abraham is Abraham. Uh, about Libya, I thought his knowledge was amazing. I thought he was fantastic. Oh, I should, mean, they should have made him the president. Well, I, I, it was complicated, yeah. but it opened my eyes to something quite refreshing. To be, well, not refreshing, but mm. you know, something new yeah. away from British politics. Yeah. And the other thing, um, I think I'm right. Nelson Mandela died on the sixth of December six years ago. Um. Was it the 6th? What is today's I date? think it was the 6th. Yeah, and this is the 8th, so. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know. We yeah, we should have mentioned them. I'll, yeah. I'll scold the gentleman who should know better, <laughs> who drew up the uh, important dates. I'll scold him when we're finished. Uh -huh. Anyway, uh, go on. Just the last one. Um, there's a, an organisation called Make Votes Matter, and it's um, about PR. Yeah. And to be honest... If there's another election within the next 12 months or whatever, um, it is a fairer system, I think, really, because you've, instead of the constituencies winning, um, your actual votes in the way they, I don't know quite how they work it out, but it would be fairer, really, don't you think? I do. I've always supported uh, proportional representation, but just as the UN Security Council will never be reformed because the existing members of it would have to vote for that reform. Uh, so this parliament will never introduce proportional representation, or yeah. at least only in very exceptional circumstances, because they're all the beneficiaries of uh, the current system, and turkeys don't normally vote for an early Christmas. So uh, I, I wouldn't hold your breath for that happening, but if the hung parliament, that at least uh, a quarter, maybe more, uh, of you are hoping for, half of you may be hoping for, if that comes to pass, mm. we will be into another general election next year. Mm. I'm absolutely sure about that, aren't you, Adam? If there's a hung parliament, and yes, and this is what's quite interesting, uh, the Conservatives and I believe Labour also are committed to repealing this ghastly Cameron Clegg fixed-term parliaments act, which mm. is, uh, along with four pieces of legislation that Tony Blair passed, probably no time to name them, is one of the most wretched pieces of constitutional vandalism of the last 30 years. 
I think that if there is a hung parliament, an election is inevitable. I think the only thing that such a hung parliament could virtually unanimously agree on is repealing this fixed-term parliaments act. But whether such a hung parliament could could be able to foster a majority behind some referendum to steal Brexit, a Remain versus Remain referendum, which is what the Labour Party want, that could end up in so much infighting that there could even be an election before that. I think that no one in their right mind should hope for a hung parliament. Someone, even whether they're on the left or on the right, people should just pray that one party wins a solid majority, even if it's a majority of one, because a hung parliament would really thrust the country into a crisis that would make the last three years look like child's play. What do you think, Norma? Oh, I think it's a, it's a muddle, really, but... Um... It might well be a hung parliament, but these make votes matter, people. They've been emailing me, and they're doing a damn good job, you know. Uh, for sure. I mean, for me, I personally argued face-to-face, -face, just me and them, with both Gordon Brown and Tony Blair before him, that now that you have these big parliamentary majorities, you must legislate now for proportional representation. And then the Tories will never be back. Because even Mrs. Thatcher never got more than 42% of the popular vote. But 42% of the popular vote under our electoral system can well give you a landslide parliamentary majority. But neither of them did so. Uh, and now we have uh, the uh, pr very real prospect uh, of uh, the Conservatives going back. Now, when you think about this, Norma, it is actually a damning indictment on the Labour Party and on the mass media that has facilitated it that a party that's been in power for a decade, most of which has been a decade of withering, bitter austerity, which has been led by a series of donkeys, David Cameron, Theresa May, and now Boris Johnson, is seriously going to get another majority on Thursday, if the polls are right. It is a damning indictment on everyone concerned in the political class, the political system, the Labour Party, the TUC, the BBC, I could, I could go on. Everyone who's contributed to the fact that it seems overwhelmingly likely that Boris Johnson will get a majority on Thursday, 10 <coughs> years of Tory government and another five years to come if he gets a majority. It's quite sobering, isn't it, Norma? Well, it's depressing, really. That's why I was interested in Musa Ibrahim. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll all need to move. <laughs> well, thank, thank you, you uh, very much indeed. The poll result uh, was Labour will win the British general election, 36% of you. 45% say Conservatives, with just 19 saying 
a hung parliament. That was 3,169 Do you know what's votes. funny about that? Yeah. That almost, ma if, if you substitute the 19% of people saying that there'll be a hung parliament for, let's say, the Liberal and Brexit party percentages nationally combined, you actually have a poll that isn't too different from than what the, the average, is likely to be. Yes, of all of the major polling companies. So there's something to be said for that. That is uh, very interesting indeed. You're right. 45 to the Tories, 36 to uh, Labour, 19% being the, the rest of them. rest, also runs. Uh, well, look, it's uh, been marvellous uh, for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, I hope you'll come back at the same time next week. Mercifully, the defences of Moscow have held and <laughs> the cyber attackers have been put to flight. And I hope you've had an enjoyable and uninterrupted flow of opinion and fact and analysis and one or two laughs on the mother of all talk shows. And if you did enjoy it, please tell just one other person. Because if every one of you brings just one more viewer or listener, then we will be on an audience of one million. Just think about that. See you next week, God willing.